0: Hello and welcome along to Cast, the official podcast of SFF Chronicles, the world's largest science fiction and fantasy community. I'm Dan Jones. And
1: I'm Pete Long. Today we're talking about Richard Adams' Watership Down, a Homeric odyssey that charts the escape, exile, exploration, settlement and conflicts of a group of rabbits in the English countryside, the book follows Hazel, who leads the Lapine group that includes his brother, Fiverr, who possesses the Cassandra-like ability to foresee disaster, the Doughty enforcer, Bigwig, who's always ready for a scrap, and a collection of others, including the storyteller, Dandelion, and the quick-witted Blackberry. Together, they escape the catastrophic destruction of their home and seek a new place in the world. Four square miles or so of Oxfordshire country becomes an epic landscape in which they encounter tragedy, adventure, injustice, unlikely kinships, danger, tyranny, and peace. A classic of children's literature, but a sophisticated read for any age, Watership Down won the Carnegie Medal for Children's Literature, the annual Guardian Prize, and also spawned the 1978 film adaption that traumatised a generation of children forever.
0: Joining us today is the critically acclaimed and award-winning author RJ Barker. Hello (laughs) RJ! There he is. He won the 2020 British Fantasy Society Robert Holdstock Award for Best Novel for his fourth novel The Bone Ships. His debut trilogy The Wounded Kingdom, The Age of Assassins, Blood of Assassins and King of Assassins was nominated for the David Gemmell Awards, the Keechee Golden Tentacle, the Compton Crook and the British Fantasy Society Best Debut and Best Novel Awards. He followed this with the award-winning Tide Child trilogy, The Bone Ships, Call of the Bone Ships and The Bone Ships Wake, which alongside its awards was compared by books list to A Game of Thrones and Moby Dick's a high praise indeed. His newest book is released in June 2023, so get your pre-orders in now. It's titled Gods of the Weirdwood and is the first book in a new trilogy set within the bounds of a forest straight out of darkest folklore with outlaws fighting an evil empire. And the warring deities. So we'll definitely be getting the lowdown on that a little bit later on. <laughs> RJ leaves in Leeds with his wife and his son and a collection of questionable taxidermy, which unfortunately you can't see, but we can see on the interview. My so God! We'll <laughs> <we're>, yeah, <laughs> we will have to post some pictures, some odd art, some scary music, although you know, not scary to some, and hmm. books, 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 loads of books uh we all three people on this call actually we got something in common because we used to play in rock bands a long long time ago mm-hmm. uh but it looks like we've got something else in common because we decided we were fairly rubbish musicians <laughs> and rj <laughs> returned to his first love which was fiction so hello rj how are you
2: hello hello dan and paul hey. i'm i'm really well i'm a bit croaky because i'm um, I, I i'll so I quickly to tell you my tale of woe because my my plan was i was meant to go to germany um with my German publisher to Leipzig Book Fair. And my plan was I was going to read Richard Adams, watch it down um, on the two planes there and the two planes back, because it was about a 19-hour trip getting there and back. And I, and I got COVID, which scuppered that quite yes. quite well. And I couldn't concentrate to read. So I've only really started in the past rereading it in the past two days. Fortunately, I've read it a lot. Well, I was going I'm, to ask, how many times have you read it? I did when, when I was younger, I used to read it every year or so. It's absolutely one of my favorite books. And I'm always surprised when I go to it, how much new stuff I find in it and how much I don't remember about it when I come back. Um, and this was quite different because i never, I'm not a, a, a kind of, I'm not someone that really looks into things. I just do stuff and I, and I read things and I enjoy it and then I move on and that's how I to and, and I was reading it in a different way. I was looking at it critically. Um, and I was like, I'm only done the first 100 pages, and I've got like 20 post-its stuck in it. Because looking at it as a writer, I saw it in a very different way. It,
0: it, it is it's layered with, with different meanings. I mean, it worked. I remember I'd, this was the first time I'd read it since I'd read it as, a, I'd, I'm guessing around the age of 12, possibly, yeah. something like that. And back then, it's just a children's book about a bunch of rabbits who have some adventures in the countryside and eventually find somewhere to live. That's it. And then rereading it. Well, firstly, I don't remember it being this big. I mean, it's a proper doorstep of a book, which is expecting a lot of children, but you know, as as JK Rowling proves, you know, if you write good stuff, you can make children (laughs) get addicted to the written word and there's loads going on in Watership Down.
2: Yeah. I looked for my original copy, which is my mum's book that she gave to me. And it's a much smaller book and much smaller type So I I don't think I could have read it. I was like, what does this word (laughs) say? It's so tiny. Um, But yeah, I think that's why it's bigger type, but it is a massive book.
0: It's like 600 pages. Yeah. It's a, it's a big old doorstep. So, so why did you choose Watership Down? All the books that we could have, and we, we bandied about a few different names, didn't we, when we were chatting about what books you might, you might have picked. um, But you settled on Watership Down. I I love this book. And going back to it. I, I
2: realise how much of it is in what what I do. Um, it, and it, it's fascinating to me. And, and it's such a, I think when I was, I've always been quite an odd person. Um, and I've never quite fitted in anywhere. Um, and I think when we talk about music, that's why I went into music, because I didn't see anyone like me in, in all the other things I did, because I read voraciously as a child, constantly. Um mm-hmm. But I didn't find myself in any of those books. I didn't find someone like me, and I saw it in like, um, metal pants. Oh, oh, yeah. There's a man that looks like a girl. Um, <laughs> I, I can do that. Um, but I think I, I very strongly uh, just clicked with Hazel and Fiverr as being like me. I, I just think, yeah, I can see myself in you. And I think that's what it is. I think that that was the. Or or like I I would have liked to have been. I've never been as as much of a leader as Hazel is. Um, But I think that's where it resonated with me, that I just thought, yeah, I I can see myself here. Well, they are,
0: at the beginning of the book, they are essentially misfits, especially Fiverr. We'll go into a little bit of the world building a little bit later on. But Fiverr's, his his rabbit language name is Hueru. Which means little thousand. We'll explain that maybe a little bit later on the language. But it essentially means the runt. So he's the runty one of the litter, and yet he possesses this uh, this third eye or second sight, this Cassandra-like ability that that Pete mentioned in the introduction. uh, That he's got the ability to foresee disaster, which and it happens. What struck me on the re-reading of the book is it goes straight into the story. There's very little exposition. It goes straight into the story. Fiverr has a a vision of what's going to happen to the the warren where the rabbit um, colony is living at the moment. And he says, something bad's going to happen. I don't know exactly what it is, but something bad's going to happen. We need to leave now. And that immediately makes him a misfit and an outcast, yeah. more of a misfit than an outcast, because he's already the runt. And Hazel, his big brother, believes him, which makes him an out an outcast uh, and a misfit. And off they go, and they, they you know, once they get cobbled together, this sort of ragtag bunch of followers. Uh, but yeah, they're they're not certainly at the beginning. They're not what you would say are uh, a typical hero figures at all.
2: But. Uh- that the start of the book well I was really struck by it, um the first line of it 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 is a killer killer first line for something that because you know I know what's coming uh, and its it's just you the it? you've
0: got I can see yeah, you've got your copy yeah, there I've got, you the, I have,
2: the primroses were over and that's it and it's nothing it's really simple but it it's not it's telling you that that something is ending and it it's just like as soon as i read it i thought oh, god that's so clever i'm nicking that next thing i write <laughs> that, that's it, it's it's really, and, and just i don't know whether you know that um richard Oden was quite dismissive about this book and nearly always said no it's really just a children's story about about some rabbits yeah um and i think it, it's kind of a death of the old thing that often you can't see your own work because it, it as i was reading it i kind of thought oh, he clearly served in the army at some point. because um, that's you, you can feel that. So I went and looked it up and he did serve in the army and, and you can in fact, kind of feel and filtering through into it. Um and Big Wig is obviously a sergeant major and Hazel is a commanding officer and I'm not sure where Fiverr fits into the army, to be honest with you. Um
1: don't think he, he doesn't. This. That's the whole misfit yeah. vibe you were
2: getting, I think. Yeah. yeah. But um I I didn't notice that as a kid at all, and but as an adult, it's so oh yeah, it's really old. Well, I,
0: I I didn't pick up on it even this time round the fact that well, obviously there is a military aspect to some of the colonies. Uh, we, mm. we we get to talk about General Woundward. He's obviously running a, a military ty- style dictatorship. Mm. He's running his own tyranny. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right about the military aspect of the of the rabbits themselves. It's um, so let, let's talk about the world building then. Let's get straight into that. we've already mentioned the language. Actually, I'll address the point that you raised, that Adams was a bit dismissive about the book. I mean, should we take that with a pinch of salt? Because throughout the book, he's scattering, What he he introduces each chapter with an overt (laughs) reference to, I've got a few listed here. I've done this too. Aeschylus, Yates, Napoleon, the Acts of the Apostles, Joseph Campbell. I mean, that's just the first (laughs) six or seven.
3: But it goes on
0: and on like that. So, I mean, yeah. are we really supposed to take Adams at his word that he's dismissing it as just a children's story?
2: Yeah, I think he's just a grumpy old man. <laughs> and it's it, it's 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 like when everybody says to me, "What is Watership down about?" I uh, I always say, "Some
0: rabbits go somewhere,"
2: because that is the plot of. Well, Watership that's down. pretty
0: pretty accurate.
2: Um, but it, it, it's not. It's just layers and layers and layers. And I'm sure we'll get on to the goth rabbits, um, which I think had a profound effect on where my life was going to (laughs) go. I think Adam's whole
1: sense of what a children's book looks like might be quite different to ours. I don't recall um, many children's books that had untranslated French in them.
2: (laughs) To be fair to him, it's not as unbearably harrowing as his other ones. Is it Shardick? The one about no, it's not Adams. He wrote one about a bear and the plague dogs.
0: Oh, I don't know that
2: they're Adams, aren't they? After because Covid has absolutely wrecked my head, I just have to make sure that they are him. Just um, uh, if you were watching this, I'm googling, which is yes. excellent, if excellent which, which is good
0: video. audio. This is uh, yeah. let's talk about the, the world building then. While um, our mm. guest is currently surfing the web, um, because. <laughs> We've got untranslated French, but Adams has gone further than that. He's gone the whole J.R.R. Tolkien route and invented a language for yeah. the rabbits, which is very strange because it's not as though the rabbits would be able to speak their own language in in reality any more than they'd no. be able to speak English. But they have this this language, and it's got its own grammatical structure, and it's got it, it comes with its own. Mythology and creation, creation myths and stories and songs. It's a very strange thing to to put into again, which basic. Uh, what's uh, on the surface a really simple children's adventure, but and, and, th- coming back it to it, point- it adds so much depth. Yeah, and and it should be pointed out that it's
2: beautiful as, as well as um, mm. Lapin. They call it the in, in at some point. Um, I marked one of the the little poems.
0: It's yeah I I think language. the some of the the best written mm. parts of the book are the stories within the story so the, yeah. the, the story of el Rira so el Rira is like the the Christ figure of rabbits is yeah. or who's in a conversation with um what's the god rabbit remind me
2: frith um the black rabbit of oh frith yeah frithson's frith, frith. got the black yes. rabbit of Inley as well he's, it
0: black he's... rabbit of inlay is like Death, isn't it? It's yeah. essentially the, 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 inca- the rabbit incarnation of death. And Ella Ryber is always up to tricks and outfoxing farmers and other animals and how the rabbit got his tail, which is kind of like a just-so story. But those stories are beautifully written. There's, a, the...
2: there's a little bit that I, I did hear of, of the um, Lepan language where Bigwig says it. And it's it's beautiful. It's just lovely to say I, I, I like words kind I like words for the meaning, and I like words just for the sound of them as well um and it, it's you emble a and it has it kind of sounds Norse when you say yeah. it out loud, it kind of has that uh, and then when when you get translation of it is the stinking thousand we meet them even when we stop to pass our droppings. It's quite sort of earthy and but it doesn't sound it whenever you come across it, it's just got this lovely kind of mouth feel. To, to the words and I think I think that had a massive effect on me as well I, I, I love that I love that he went and did it And I, I wonder if if he did it last I always think if, if he went back and if he wrote it in as English and then went back and
0: I've translated. got no idea I mean if, if you, from a writer's perspective uh, we mentioned Tolkien already. Tolkien seems to get mentioned a lot when we're talking. We've never covered mm. Tolkien, but he always seems to be hanging around in the background. He started with his <laughs> language building first. That was the main thing. And then the story sort of hung off the hook of the language. But if you start with a language, I mean, that's a hell of a tough thing to do. So it does yeah. make more sense if you're writing a conventional novel or narrative that you would start with the narrative and fill in the gaps later.
2: Did Adam of, start you
1: know, telling this tale to his children?
2: Yeah, yeah. Started telling it to his children, then wrote it down in the end. I don't know if he wrote it down for them, which is very similar to The Hobbit, isn't it? Because that's how yes, that's talking. the
0: same thing, isn't it? Yeah, with The Hobbit. Yeah.
2: Just a bit of fantasy trivia. Um, Tolkien started writing The Hobbit uh, about a mile over there in Headingley. There's a blue plaque in the building he stayed in when he was a lecturer at his university.
0: Oh, in, yes. In Headingley, did you say?
2: Yeah, yeah, Headingley oh, Leeds.
0: Which, um, very cool. Just, do You go and pay a, pay homage, pay a little pilgrimage every now and then.
2: Well, uh, fantasy heresy, not a big fan.
0: Oh well, you're not the first to say that. It's okay.
2: Uh, I, I appreciate it for what it is, but I think it reads very dated, um, and 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 it's it's not not my type of fantasy. It's not. not
0: so how to, so how did Watership Down then uh, influence what your writing is all about because i i when i read the the game of thrones comparison having you know i i'm about two-thirds of the way through the bowden ships at the moment yeah. i can see that i mean that that makes sense that comparison yeah. uh, which again is a sort of a a different tack from tolkien isn't it while appreciating yeah. what tolkien did it's a completely different tack but where did Watership down fit in
2: and uh, one of the things i'm obsessed with is friendships and odd friendships, and you've got that in the Bone with um, Mayas and Joram. Um, I personally wouldn't claim um, Game of Thrones as an influence, um, at all. I've read the first two books, yeah. And in, in my first book, the Assassin Books, um, in those, I came out to tell stories of their legends just like they do with, with and that was a direct reference to this. Um, it's more in those books than I think it is in the Bone because the Bone is. Also, a big homage to Patrick O'Brien, who who I I adore. But I I think the kind of of there's an age of writers like that were writing in the sort of 50s and 60s that seems to quite resonate with me. But it it it, it's the friendship in this that that hit me. And the the I'm gonna this is a massive spoiler.
0: No, we Um, we deal with spoilers all the time. It's absolutely fine. Um.
2: The, the moment in this book where it absolutely breaks me is, is not when Hazel passes through the side, because I don't think that's sad. I think, I, personally, I think that's a misreading of of what the book's about and how it works. Um, it's when Bigwig stands up to wound war and says, my chief rabbit has told me not to move. I feel teary just saying that, um, be, because he, to, at any point in that book, Bigwig could have turned around and gone, actually, I'm the biggest. I'm the biggest and but he doesn't because he he's become friends with Hazel. Right, it's more than just her.
0: friends. He he
2: respects yeah. Hazel for what he's yeah. done.
1: Which he doesn't he, always for all the book. No, no, a, he There's a thread of I, I've come this far because I didn't know what else to do mm-hmm. at the start, but there's a sense of doubt of maybe I'm actually the right rabbit.
2: And and, and he slowly learns. Uh, and I love that, that journey of slowly learning and and yeah. I think that that's in everything I do. Yeah. It's very I, I mean
1: my mind immediately went to the way that um Gerton learns to realise just who Idol is through the first mm. trilogy.
2: I loved writing that. that was, <laughs> we'll, we'll get onto that later that, that, that yeah.
3: really
2: on. Um but yeah, and, and that's that's the, that's kind of every book has, has a moment for me and that. That is what this book builds to for me that's the moment in it everything else and the other thing that i noticed about it is um i I will flick backwards and forwards i'm very bad at staying on more or less tells you the plot of the book that's Um, yeah that seems about right for me
1: i've only read the book once i for this i never read it as a child so i mean this was my first read of wardship down and um I actually, because I have gods of the weird word as a review copy, I was reading them at the same time, you know, doing a bit of compare and contrast. And the thing that really stuck out to me was the way the landscape is treated in both and just how important it is and how much attention's paid to like the little details. Mm-mm. I was wondering how yeah. that resonated with you.
2: Yeah. I think the the landscape in, in this, I mean, it's a very, call it very British, a very English-feeling mm. landscape. It, it, and it's really weird when I'm reading it, I, I can smell it. I can smell British Summer and, and what it's like to walk through those country lanes. Because I, I, I'm in a group in Leeds, it's a big city, but it's a very green city. Yeah. And you could, like, be... So, um, and I think landscape's probably a big part of everything I do because the, the Assassin books were... Um, all in my head based on Yorkshire moors.
1: Yeah, as a bloody student, it reminded me very much of Yorkshire.
2: Yeah, and and, uh, uh, I saw Strip Mine, which is where the idea came from, magic sucking the life out of the land. Um, And then The Bone Ships is all about the sea, because I I love the sea. It's big and it wants to kill you, and I'm fascinated by it. Uh, And then this is forest. I don't know what landscape I'm going to move on to next.
0: Is landscape, is, is, is that the starting point for you, in looking at landscape first, like the setting, and then does the story fall out of that, or is it the idea first?
2: I don't, um, I don't really know. It tends to sort of be quite everything at once. Like I have an idea and, and like, go, right, right, I'll do that, and then I write it and see what happens uh, and go back to it.
0: Um, so it's a bit of discovery process.
2: Very much a discovery process.
0: Mm, okay, you know. interesting. Uh, interesting. Uh,
1: I mean, I'm I'm I will say,
0: Wardership Down as a
1: child of Southern England. Now in exile, it made me quite homesick in places.
2: Yeah, it, and it's it's a very particular England um, in Wardership Down.
0: Yeah, well, um, it's uh, West Oxfordshire, isn't it? It's that sort of. Way. Yeah, I think I, a, a couple of specific place names are mentioned every now and then but I, I think it's in England that doesn't and never has existed I kind of well think it, it, it is myth it's it's a mythical mm. landscape for the purposes yeah. of the story it's an epic mythical landscape and mm. like we said in the introduction it's got sort of despotic mm. areas and it's got unspoiled areas and it's got areas which have been colonized by humans and it's got waterways. So there's that sense of movement when there's the waterway, which is, you know, a major part of the story, the rivers and the Mm. the canals, uh, a major part of the story. So it, it's, it probably, I mean, parts of the English countryside, as you say, it's very recognizable Mm. while it might not necessarily exist in reality. It is that bucolic ideal. Of English part. countryside, which is under undercut a little bit by the threat of danger, a bit like the sea. You mentioned the mm. sea; it wants to kill yeah. you, but it's also it's also that promise of treasure and discovery and adventure. The same thing applies to the English countryside, I think, in Watership Down. Yeah, part because of me they. they, they th- sorry, go on.
2: Part of me thinks that this is, this isn't England that people who vote for Brexit think they're getting. Uh, it, it's that version of kind of 1950s England. There, there there's, a, there's a brilliant bit in it where he says about most rabbits have never left more than, never left their warren, which is, that is a very sort of 1950s English thing, yeah. people who would be raised to this, very Miss Marple and, and, and all that, people who would never leave their village. Um, I, and I quite liked that.
0: That the, that e- the honey e- the honeycomb warren the, where the, the honeycomb no, warren so no
2: no it's right at the beginning um oh right oh the it, original
0: talk- warren the original yeah warren. it's talking
2: about hazel and fiver saying that um the first ever been because most of them will
0: never leave the warren um, that well was, that that, that the theme favorite. crops up again uh, yeah. we'll, we'll come to efrafar and woundworts a little bit later but the the second warren that they come across where the the rabbits are are cowed and subdued, almost like Stepford rabbits. Yeah. All, they they never leave, <laughs> and they realise that's because there's there's something out there that occasionally, like like a like a god, essentially just mm. picks them off, and they don't know which one of them is going to be picked off, and it's the humans. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it. smoking them out and just taking a rabbit to take away and eat, you know, yeah. cook for their dinner, and so they're completely cowed. So even that the the, the behaviour that the rabbits have. At, at the beginning, is replicated elsewhere in the book, but for different reasons. Not because they don't want to leave, it's because they're so terrified, <laughs> petrified, that <laughs> they just stay they stay exactly where they are.
2: Yeah, they're, they're,
0: I, I love the goth rabbits. <laughs> oh, are they the goth rabbits. That's what you're yeah, talking Yeah, they're the goth about. rabbits. Yeah. Oh, they're, right, um, yeah. They're, so they, yeah, they stay indoors during the day. Yeah, I get it now. Yeah, yeah,
2: they, they, they don't want for anything, so they've got a lot of time to write poetry about death i remember <laughs> that yes part. they are that of was, course they
0: are quite morbid yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And, and i think that's the first time i ever came across poetry um well that's not true no because my mum loved poetry so i was aware of kind of um a lot of victorian poetry and, and edward lear and stuff like that you know matilda who went to death and who's the boy that got eaten by a lion Tonto the lion hate him don't annoy the lion it'll eat you which is is a Brilliant life lesson. But the poetry in What Ship Down is very different in that it, it's, it's really quite morbid and dark. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how it ended up in a, in goth clubs yeah. in the mid-90s. I'm quite. They sure. don't
0: have very goth names, though, do they? Strawberry is the rabbit that escapes the, the honeycomb warren.
2: Yeah, that could be ironic, though, couldn't it? That, that, let's have these limbs full of life because we know life is short and we're going to die. That and sounds about right yeah uh, yeah I mean I, I knew a goth called blossom so, so, if, if <laughs> so, actually, like, so it fits so actually yeah it does yeah, pop. It, yeah. but um, I, I i I've just got to that bit in it
0: and, and I reread I, 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 I guess it, yeah. it it's another example of those odd fredsh- friendships which run mm. through the through the book um and they are they're unlikely friendships I suppose mm. aren't they so strawberry is is the one is it just strawberry I believe it's just it's strawberry it's just, mm. just strawberry who leaves the second rabbit, and it takes a huge amount of courage, uh, a leap of faith from Strawberry to leave what's essentially certain death. So this honeycomb Warren is essentially certain death. It's just that they all cluster together and they don't know which one of them is going to be plucked out by the humans and killed. Well, that's the interesting thing because the one who
1: is plucked out and killed just before Strawberry leaves is Strawberry's mate, his doe. That's whose it. name I can't remember because it's utterly unpronounceable.
2: It's um, not, not Heisenberg, is it?
1: No, she, that's... She that's later. Yeah, yeah, but... It. I mean, and it's... And so, Strawberry's leaving becomes not just an act of courage, it's also an act of despair. Like, he's lost what he's had there. And I think something that looking back, I see a lot of in Watership Down is that line between courage and despair and
2: What's prompting it? It's it's quite a bleak book because they the the rabbits from that warren come and, and they invite them. They say, "Look, you you need somewhere to live, mm. and we have somewhere to live, and there's there's more food than we can ever eat. There, there's everything you need." But what they're actually doing is they're improving their own odds to survive. Yeah, by getting in these other rabbits, and actually they don't tell them that, that there's a good chance you
0: can end up in a snare. Well, it's it's after. it's uh, all of these things that happen in Wardship Down are about. Hazel's growth, mainly Hazel's growth as a leader and his and at the at the beginning, essentially he follows Fiverr's instinct on instinct, or at least out of faith. But he learns wisdom and learns how to take decisions based on what he sees in front of him. So it, it would be very easy to say, Yeah, let's stay in the Warren. Let's stay in the Warren. Um we've got lots of food to eat we don't need to go exploring the countryside anymore we'll be we'll be fine here but you're right the rabbits are only out to increase their own odds of survival and their odds of survival are bleak anyway mm. because that staying in that warren is going to result in certain death and eventually hazel realizes that this is not it's a bit like the walking dead you know the zombie mm. series <laughs> because every now and then they they happen upon this oasis of uh, peace and order uh, and safety, which every single time, and you'd think they'd learn yeah, after the first it. three or four yeah. times, <laughs> every single time it turns out to be, <laughs> it's either run by some sort of brutal dictator or there's something else sinister going on and they just have to leave and move on. It's the same thing. And so they're acquiring, Hazel is it's, acquiring wisdom along the way. That that Warren as
2: well, that in the whole sequence I find it quite difficult to read because there is a, almost a, a, a miasma to the writing. There is this feeling of something being deeply wrong from the minute they turn, the minute you meet that first rabbit and it doesn't act like a rabbit should. That's, that's the clue. And, it, uh, and they're all saying that. They're, all, they're not worried by it. It's just that
0: you're not. They, they like notice that it's shit. odd. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not frightened. And they can't work it out. It's and actually,
0: Adams did his, did his research, didn't he? He um, mm. What was the name of the book? It's something like The Private Lives of Rabbits, something like that. Yeah, he mentions it. In he mentions, mentions it in, as yeah. one of the references. I forget <clears throat> the author's name. But he did his homework, so he knew how rabbits would behave and he knew how they wouldn't behave. And so he was able to... I think it's a really clever incorporation yeah. into the plot and, and he how he reflects the, the characters of the rabbits.
2: Talking animal books are... Uh, I, I love a talking animal book. I, I, I'm I'm a sucker for them, but it has to be the talking animal books where they feel like animals. Like somebody said to me, "You should read Redwall. You'll love Redwall." And I hated Redwall because because it, it. Well, first of all, it's clearly it's not meant for somebody my age. It's meant for somebody who who's quite a lot younger, I think, at the first book especially. But they they're not talking animals. They're they're it's a fantasy story that happens. Yeah. They just happen they're just animals, the people that Brian
1: Jakes knew around the Liverpool docks turned into <laughs> animals. Yeah. <laughs> and you could just turn them right back to humans and the stories would work.
3: Yeah. yeah so when, I, when... I was
1: thinking that same point. I mean, I grew up in the Red Wall books, but I mean, they are so different. Yeah. So different to Watership Down.
2: They're, they're, they're not. So my, I tried to get my son to read them, but he wasn't having it. It's just uh, I don't know why they just don't click with him either. I do But um, as well as what she've done is Dr. Wood*, which is like the R-rated version. Of what she done, watch it down with moles, sex, and violence, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> but they they act like moles that yeah. they don't act like people, and I love that. That's why I like Adrian Tchaikovsky's work so much. Um,
0: yeah, he he's he's good at that stuff, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he
0: was really and, good at um in *The Dogs of War*. Get yeah. uh, capturing the, the the dogginess. I think he called it the dogginess of Rex, the yeah. main character. Yeah, he, and and the other ones, dragons and bees, and
2: Phenomenal, the other yeah.
0: one, what was the bear called? I forget. Mm. Honey, I think. Honey. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it's it's so simple. You think, well, mm. it's 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 so obvious that you you couldn't not do it. But making your rabbit characters actually act like rabbits, yeah. and it, yeah, you are right. It creates that really sinister off feeling. But then, okay. I suppose we should probably come to... Uh, well, actually, before we come to Ephraphah, um the rabbits, there's another odd friendship that I wanted to bring up, which is Kehar, the gull.
2: Yeah, I love... I Tell love
0: us Kehar. about Kehar. I mean, yeah, I think Kehar is a fabulous character. Fabulous character. Yeah. Really well-written, really strange, odd, yeah. unlikely. Again, a misfit. And yeah.
2: alien and not of their world. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and that is how how you learn how much Hazel has changed. That instead of running away, which is what you really should do, he, he befriends this really quite unpleasant goal.
0: What well, I mean, I guess to rabbit, Yeah. It speaks yeah. in a strange what they call it like, yeah. what do they call it? Countryside Creole or something. It's yeah, something lots like Lots of that, little pig figs.
2: Yeah. I always think of him as Russian. That That's kind of. The vibe. Oh, yeah,
0: I was, I was getting a Hungarian sort of Middle yeah. European type vibe from him. But apparently, yeah. I did read somewhere that he's supposed to be Norwegian. Is I'm, sure I read, I'm sure I read somewhere that he's supposed to be Norwegian. I, and I've you know, met a few Norwegians over the years. And I don't think that's written like if it's supposed to be a Norwegian accent, then Adams has failed badly. So I think yeah. Middle <laughs> European.
2: <laughs> but again, it, it comes to part of me thinks it, it's that going back to. Richard Adams' War service, because be, you, yeah. you've got infantry and air support then. Yeah. And that is how they use him later on. He, yes,
0: that's a really good point. He is their air support, yeah. isn't he? I, yeah. And just, they, they use him for reconnaissance as well, don't they? Yeah, he's just yeah.
2: brilliant. And, and at the end, they scatter his his um, droppings around to give him the impression he's still there. To try and get a reference, which I think is just and, um, great. Yeah, he's, he he's also,
0: I, th- I think... he at the beginning you said they should be scared of him you know what's that great big bird out there don't go near him and he's almost like a dragon you know yeah like you said alien otherworldly potentially very dangerous but you know there's a little bit of saint george and the dragon so hazel thinks no we're going to go up to it well i'm going to go up to i'm going to engage with it and see what happens and from that, so it's like the dragon guarding the treasure. Because he engages with the with this crazy, dangerous creature, he actually manages to extract something of, you know, sort of unfathomable value out of they it. This, this, there, there is probably quite a lot of key heart that went into the
2: glam in the bone ships. I've never thought about it until this moment. Really? And, and now you've, yes. Yeah. Now you've said it, it. It's quite. I've always thought it's Skeksis, um, but it, it's not. It's key heart course it's key Ki- yeah
0: Skexis, as that. in uh what uh, dark crystal dark Crystal. yeah yeah it was,
2: mm. it, it, I, I imagined the sort of skexis was one of my starting points with it but actually kiha lives in the back of my head you know there's things that don't appear until somebody says it to you and you go ah oh. well it's yeah, it, it, the he knowledge
1: you yeah. all the time until but you didn't know it until somebody said it
0: yeah i mean it, it's it, it is a in that sense he is kind of a classic a uh, fantasy character, or no, even just a classic, fan- a classic dramatic character who appears yeah. dangerous and roguish and otherworldly, and ends up being, you know, some somebody of great value, and who can establish a great friendship with you.
3: Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I guess
0: Aragorn is a bit like that because he's sort of strange and dangerous to begin with. In Lord, I of the Rings. love an unlikely friendship as well. Yeah, yeah, I
1: just to go back on Vif on what you were saying about the wartime service for a moment, um, I feel like if you were to call Hazel a character archetype, he's the reluctant officer. He finds himself forced into this position of command that he has no real idea that he's suited for, but because like, of like him, Stanley Baldwin
0: in Zulu, yeah,
1: or. Yeah. or um frodo in lord of drinks or Joran in the bone chips Mm. and i think the goal is one of hazel's moments of having shown his growth as the reluctant officer because he's now able to completely approach it like this is his natural situation there is something dangerous and he is able to just say it's less dangerous to go and talk with him than to stay here.
0: I, I, I like that reading of the bone ships as well, because you're right. Joran is essentially humiliated right at the beginning of the book. And yes. then very quickly he becomes essentially officer class. Mm. It, it's um the, the other thing about
2: Hazel, just to go back to the officer thing. Um, and it happens quite, quite early on. His skill is and it's a brilliant lesson for anybody. His skill is is not that he's the cleverest or the strongest. It's that he listens. Um, yeah. When when they reach the stream and and um, Fiver and Pipkin can't get across because they're they're knackered, and dandelion says oh that that thing floats they're like what the fuck <laughs> what is, that the it was rabbit's
0: is it black isn't it Blackberry, blackberry. I was yeah it? i always get blackberry yeah. dandelion, dandelion Blackberry's dandelion's a storyteller blackberry's the genius yeah. he's the yeah. genius yeah. rabbit yeah yeah
2: and they're like what do you mean it floats what's floating and he's going no 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 get him on it it'll work and hazel he, the way it's phrased is hazel just knows that he's cleverer than he is yeah. and mm. he's cleverer than we do it and that's a proper leader It's not someone who could I I need the glory. It's someone who wants to get it done. And that's
0: the the antithesis of Woundwater, isn't it? I'm so glad you said that about listening, because I was just, as we were mentioning earlier, about the rabbits going through exile in the countryside, it reminded me of a conversation that we had when we had Emily Inkpin on as a guest a while Hmm. ago, and she chose The Left Hand of Darkness as her book. And as we were talking about that, we fished out the parallels between that and uh, the the exodus story with Moses leading leading the israelites out of tyranny from the pharaoh and into the desert and before they reach the promised land they have to go through the desert which is terrible and there's a similar sort of thing happening yeah. here they they leave somewhere where okay there might be a disaster on the way but they actually want to go back to the place that's a catastrophe because they're going through the desert and when they're in the desert in the Exodus book, and it's the same with Left Hand of Darkness. The characters are bickering, and they're bitching, and they're backbiting, and they're complaining, and they're moaning. And Moses listens to them and comes up with the answer. And in that respect, the answer is the Ten Commandments. He said, "This is what you're, what's what you need to do to solve all your problems." In Left Hand of Darkness, it's the two characters reaching a sort of platonic love and a mutual understanding and and respect for each other. And in this book, it's Hazel, like you say, growing as a leader and enabling him to continue taking them with him to wherever it is that they need to go. But they've got to go through these trials and tribulations in order for him to reach that. There's
2: there's a lovely bit where he's just after they've left the Warren. um, And Hazel is having his crisis of confidence, which he he has to have, because that's part of the character arc. And he's talking to Pipkin, who's hurt, and saying, come on, we can do this. We can do it. And because you're in his head, you you hear him thinking, am I doing this for him or me? And then once they've done it, one of the other rabbits says, oh, um, I I was quite annoyed by you keeping saying that, but actually it was what I needed to hear. And you were right. We we could do it. We did it. But you know that actually Hazel was terrified where they think, oh, you, you knew, you knew all along. And it, it's kind of, it's really lovely and,
0: and clever. Gets very much to the heart of leadership there.
3: Mm.
0: So let's, let's compare him to a general wound We've mentioned him a couple of times in passing. And again, Isn't he's battered? a fabulous character. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a vicious son of a bitch. Bigger than mm. Bigwig. And we, we're told frequently, Bigwig is a big old he's rabbit. rabbit. He's yeah. Quite happy to have a scrap and have a scrap with plenty of other animals outside, mm. you know. From the the uh, the uhrer, which is the thousand. <laughs> so that's in the yeah, rabbit talk. Yeah, yeah. Hre, the uhrer means the thousand because everything wants to kill them. So their enemies yeah. are called the uhrer. And Bigwig doesn't get you. Like let's get into a scrap. And we're told that wound, War is even bigger than Bigwig. Yeah, he's very aggressive and he uses it. He uses his strength as a means to acquire and maintain power. So he's the ultimate contrast between, uh, for, for, for ultimate foil for, for Hazel. that is, is, this is, it's a while, I've not
2: got that far yet and it's a while since I've read it, but I'm always left with the feeling that Wound War is actually powered by fear and, and, and his is, is <laughs> Sorry, I've cats' Yeah,
3: Pete's um, cat is colonizing yeah, the cat.
2: show. Yeah, my, my cat is stood sat at the window there looking at me and saying, Why aren't you letting me in? It's just
0: oh, yeah, well, I've had to kick out. my cat out as well.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I can't, but it is that made me think that. Just something about all this control and all keeping people there, and it's all about keeping the outside away. And, and it's like his his castle. It just always struck me as its feeling. And you get that line at the end: i not who's afraid of a dog." That, that he, has, yeah, he yeah yeah it's a great completely line. Completely stupid. Yeah, for a rabbit to prove that he's not frightened.
0: Yeah, and it's not, not like just that. a dog, is it? It's like a uh, it's like a wolfhound or something ridiculous, yeah, isn't it? Like a massive, great big dog.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's their secret weapon, and that, that's a brilliant sequence. Yeah. The whole there's chase. A- there's a particular
1: quote that came into my mind and I'm gonna quickly see if I can find it since you said it. But I think at some point someone says okay, here it is, um it's from Captain Holly and it's Big Rick was right when he said that he, he being General Roomwall, wasn't like a rabbit at all. He was a fighting animal, fierce as a rat or a dog. And here's the key word. He fought because he actually felt safer fighting than running. And I think yeah. that is the heart and soul of what you just said he
3: yeah. and, and
1: he felt he's, safe he's, then
2: he he's a pitiable character in a lot of ways he's, yeah because there, there is a, there is a moment where where he could make a good decision yeah. yes they're given the option and and that is where you find out that it, it, he's that's, he's actually
0: a monster that's when isn't that when bigwig Infiltrates uh, Efrafar, Ephrafa being the Warren that Windwort yeah. rules um, with an iron paw. Yeah, with an iron an iron <laughs> paw. Uh, yeah. oh, no, isn't it, no, isn't it Hazel who masquerades as a messenger from Hazel's yeah. own camp, and he goes into Efrafar and, yeah, and, he and gives, he gives him the, gives the, offer. the ultimatum. Mm. Not the yeah, an offer, yeah. not an ultimatum, an offer. And the, the, um, they, could,
2: they could mix, and Windwort's just like.
0: No, oh, it's, uh, Well, he's a tyrant, isn't he? And so he either has all of the power or he has none of it. Yeah, but, but he's, that's the
1: exact word used. Like, again, I've got the quote open. It's like, at that moment, in the sun ship, sunset and watership down, there was offered to General Woundwalk the opportunity to show whether he was really the leader of Vision and Genius, which he believed himself to be, or whether the, he was no more than a tyrant with the courage and cunning of a pirate.
0: But that's so- it yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's 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 very clever stuff it, it really is
2: and by this time the rabbits have gone somewhere they, they've done it and they've found their promised land.
0: Well Basically. yes, they found it
3: mm.
0: um, but they need they need to mate so that's that's mm. why they they're engaging with Fafar because they've had an yeah. interactions with Fafar at this point. Um, but they realize, and this is maybe something we could talk about. They don't have enough does, so they don't have enough female rabbits, so they're not going to be able to mate. So there's a dearth of female characters up to this point. It's only when Bigwig infiltrates Erfrfr and poses as uh, an officer, so uh, an exiled officer, so that he and then they take him into their Ausla, which is their officer class, uh, the sergeant majors of the operation, um, and we start seeing some of the the female rabbits. Like, as you say, unpronounceable names, so I'm <laughs> not even going to attempt it. Uh, uh, yeah, they're sort of, sort of Polish-Hungarian... I don't know what's going on with these names. Heisentle, that's the one I can Hei- say. Heysenfle. Yes.
2: Heysenfle. Is she the one that leads the, the does out of Ephrafra? Yes. Yeah, uh, and... Yeah. Uh, tremendously brave, and it's another thing that that kind of makes you think that it, it is a book about the military because there's no women in it up to this point. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's all the blokes doing their blokey things and going off there, and and it's not Hazel's best decision to not take any girls. Yeah. Here
0: we go. Yeah, the, the, the Thuthenang, the Thuthenang yeah. is is one of the female names.
2: Oh yeah, I mean
0: yeah. This, this I mean, I, I don't know what's going on with the naming conventions mm. uh, in there because all of the all of the male rabbits have names like Bigwig and Hazel and Fiver and yeah. Dandelion and yeah, Hizenthale and Thethuthanang. Oh. It's and, and
2: yeah, a, Female rabbits also do all the work, don't they? They're the ones that do the digging.
0: They do the digging. That's yeah, right.
2: Boys don't dig. Bo- no, boys.
0: Boys don't dig. They, the boys do. They. Too. They. They. Yeah. They go and eat breakfast and yeah. keep a bit of order and, and um, make, make baby rabbits and yeah. fight occasionally and that's about it.
2: But it, the the thing that I like, I mean, there, there's lots of like, obviously I fascist and de- deliberately painted in that way. But what, what I like about that whole thing is it all exists just for that moment, which I started out at the beginning when Bigwig says, my chief rabbit has told me to hold this run. Yeah. And and it's just brilliant. Uh, and and they win because Wound War can't he, he just can't make the leap that maybe that to him, if Bigwig who's fought into a standstill is not the chief rabbit, there's a much bigger rabbit who's fiercer yeah. and harder. And that's why he backs off. But when it, when it's not true and, and all it is is Bigwig is prepared to die to protect his friend.
0: Uh, I, I was Listening, um, I listened to a podcast a while ago with Franz de Waal, the um, primatologist, hmm. and he talked about chimpanzee He studied chimpanzees in the in the wilds in Central Africa for a long time, and they they have wars with, with one another. So one troop will go to war with another troop, and if a uh, if uh, if the dominant male in the in the troop is a wound wart character, then he can rule for a certain amount of time with the iron fist but sooner or later we'll get torn apart. And so the e- e- even in nature, and obviously this is a rabbit analogy, not, you know, not, not chimps as going rabbits, but the point stands that the, the alpha male in the troop is the one who can forge the best friendships and the best relationships with the other chimpanzees and not just the other males, mm. but the females as well. So the ones who can demonstrate reciprocal behaviour and I guess listen, you know, in a, whatever fashion a chimp listens to another chimp but you see, what, you see my point and, <laughs> yeah, and this is where hazel he is the alpha yeah. male even though he's, he's relatively small he could never take on big in a fight but he is the alpha rabbit he's hazel uh, he, he's called hazel ra isn't he which is yeah. rabbit talk for but the king
2: it's that whole idea of how the, the whole anyone who calls himself an alpha male you immediately can write off as an idiot because it means that they don't understand that the whole idea of it, because it, it, it's not about, because if you, because we're, we're social animals, it, it's about being successful in that social setting. It's not about being able to kick the shit out to somebody. Because um, that's, there's a really interesting thing, because you said about chimps, showing that, um, <clears throat> I can't remember I read it, but um, in the troops where they have a, a very sort of domineering male, mm. the females will more of them will go behind his back with other males who are not, who have more social skills. They'll, they'll like sneak off with them.
0: Oh, that doesn't, that's not surprising at all, really. No, because
2: no. you want some chill. You don't, you don't want some someone. I've always thought to <laughs> anyone who says they're an alpha male, I just think, yeah, you're the person that everyone can't wait to leave the party.
0: You're wound um, war.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. who you are. You're, you're that person that partied everything, just go, please. So
0: could have a good time. <laughs> right. Is there anything we've missed with, with Ward's shit down?
2: The last thing I would say is a lot of people, yeah, and, and you said it at the beginning about it being harrowing because um, Hazel dies at the end. Yes. And I, and I don't think it actually is because what, what happens is Hazel has done everything he possibly can. He's uh, and he's given the opportunity to move on to the early next place, which is to join the the owls of the black rabbit of Inley. That, that's 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 like being told you look, you you've succeeded.
0: You are the best rabbit. You've given uh, everything I, you could. Oh, it's, yeah, it's I, it's a very it is a moving yeah piece, and and there is a, a sadness attached to that because he dies. But yeah, it uh, he is the. We mentioned uh, El Arira, so he's like the yeah. Christ figure of rabbits, and Hazel's been able to get as close to El Arira as it's possible for a yeah. rabbit to get, and so he's rewarded with that in in, in uh, taking up his position with the black rabbit, with death. But it's I've like that. It. Do you remember in, in in the Harry Potter books and the, and the movies, and the, there's the Beedle the Bard stories, and there's the story of the three brothers and God, uh, who, who tried to cheat death, and the one... Oh, yes. um, who takes the invisibility cloak mm. at, where, at the end of his life? He greets death as if being greeted by an old friend, and that's the oh, sense that I think you get yeah. here with Hazel. And it's—I don't know if you've listened to any of our episodes before, but the the. the no, not the most recent one, but the re- most recent one was Titus Grown. But the one we did before that was the Excalibur, the, the 80s film, the John Borman. Oh, I love that film um, oh, so we'll much. Have to, you'll have to go back yeah.
2: and listen then. I will. I'll definitely go back and listen to that.
0: Can I tell you a brilliant really <laughs> story about that film? I'll, just, I'll finish for a then, <laughs> then Tell video, us about yeah. Excalibur. At the yeah. End, yeah. end of that, where um, Arthur goes to Avalon, it's the same thing. Yes,
2: it's exactly the yeah. same thing. So that,
0: there's there's the Avalon parallel with, with Hazel. Tell us about Excalibur.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: it saved my life once.
2: <clears throat> I, I was wandering through Leeds, quite drunk, uh, very, very got up. I had massive hair. I was covered in makeup. When, when I was younger, I, I just looked like a girl. Men used to chat me up all the time, and I used to have to go, look, I'm, I'm not a girl. I'm just skinny, and I have really long hair. But because um, I was drunk, I wasn't watching where I was going. I took a wrong turning, and I turned, ended up outside one of the roughest clubs in Leeds, surrounded by men with no necks, who clearly... <laughs> did not appreciate me. Rude uh, Yeah, they were slowly surrounding me, and I had no idea what to do. And I don't know to this day why I did this. But what I did was I stuck my hand in the air, and I said, any man who would follow a king. And I gave the speech from Excalibur that Arthur does. And,
4: and there was this done. moment
2: of silence.
4: <laughs> and
2: then somebody produced a traffic cone, I put it on my head,
3: <laughs> and, and I crowned kind of, you. I,
2: yeah, and I led okay. them round the square. in leads to the statue of the Black Prince, uh, and then they just kind of vanished. Well, that's and awesome.
0: Like, so you were crowned. Actually, it's, yeah. it's, we should mention this. We're doing this recording on the day of the coronation. So King Charles yes. was just crowned a little bit earlier today. Now we yeah. get this lovely story of you being crowned. Yeah, I'm the official in king Fort of Leeds. Gotham, yes. Regalia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because of Excalibur. Did that traffic. Cone. Yeah. That's super. Oh, so- yeah I, I don't think we can top that so we should probably stop this half of the show yeah. right there um that was that was lots of fun talking about water ship down it was. Uh, and we will join you a little bit later on in the show
4: a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush what i said a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush I
5: know what you said. I mean, what in the nine triangles of bongolarn are you talking about?
4: It's a proverb. The humans they use them all the time. In fact, they're the nine hundred and thirty-second most popular human thing to you, well, next to crack cocaine and fidget spinners. I mean, you said you wanted to do a show about them. Hmm? All right, the show. I almost forgot. Uh, hello, listener.
5: You are listening to Mars Radio fourteen. The third best radio station in the Martian Space Force broadcasting spectrum. My name is Captain Half Milk Carton. I've been joined by Lieutenant Bungalow, who is just back from Earth. And on
4: this show, we're going to be talking about Proverbs. Well, you wish, Bungalow? That's my bit to say. It doesn't matter who says it. The listeners don't give a crap who says it. All they care is that it is said. It
5: matters to me a lot. There's no point in me if I don't have things to do and
4: say. Ah, ha, have milk on the was have a proverb for that. It goes, do not become a tree unless you like to stand around a lot with your arms outstretched. That doesn't sound right, bungalow. And go back to the thing you were saying about the two bushes. What are they? It was two birds, not two bushes. And birds are small creatures with feathers that lay eggs and fly around the place, excreting as they go delightful really oh like martina ruddle splitch yeah yeah
5: i guess like her only you know smaller why would i want two martina ruddle splitches sorry i mean two small martina ruddle splitches
4: well i mean you wouldn't what you want is one small martina ruddle splinch like in your hand that'd be nice I i could do that yeah right it sounds messy are there any other proverbs? Oh, any amount of them. I mean, I mean, humans
5: can't get enough of this stuff. They just can't. Right. That's the truth. I know you said that. I did. For obbligong's sake, have you asteroids in your head bungalow? Can you give another example of a human proverb before I mush your anterior vestibule into frungle? Actions speak louder than words.
4: And what do you mean by that? It's another human proverb. OK. Then what do humans mean by that? Well, they mean that if you kick something like, say, a box or an enchilada cylinder, then the resulting sound is far superior to anything your vocal cords can create. That is the greatest load of gibberish I have ever heard. Well, I mean, it might seem like gibberish to you half-milk hard, but proverbs are a big deal to humans. And I mean,
6: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know what they say about humans.
6: Hello and welcome to The Judge's Corner with me, Damaris Brown. If you were a regular listener last year, you'll know that as well as my talks on legal matters we authors need to know about, such as copyright and defamation, I also covered topics which had historical legal aspects we could use in our stories. In a return to the latter, this month I'm following up on the talk I gave in March, where I discussed trial by combat in John Borman's film Excalibur as I'm looking at the early history of criminal trials in England. Since I spoke at some length about the specifics of trial by combat, I won't repeat that detail now, but it will help inform what follows. So if you haven't yet listened to the Excalibur Kronzcast, do go listen to it now. As I explained then, judicial combat was only one of a number of trials by ordeal which arose across Europe in the early medieval period, a time of devout faith coupled with an absence of both central authority and sophisticated legal systems these trials by ordeal covered a variety of tests but all involved the accused having to do something or submitting to having something done to them and as the word ordeal suggests that something was usually painful at best dangerous at worst the rationale behind them lay in the belief that God not only watched what went on in the human realm, but actively intervened in human affairs with miraculous results. And since he knew who was innocent and who guilty, and he could control the outcome of any trial, that outcome would necessarily be divine judgment on the accused. In Anglo-Saxon England, status ordained who faced what test. Noblemen, thanes and freemen underwent the ordeals of fire and hot iron, presumably because these were less degrading. The accused had to plunge his hand, or, if the offence was serious, his bare arm up to the elbow, in a vessel of boiling water, to retrieve a stone at the bottom. Or he would be made to carry red-hot iron over a set distance, nine paces, say, or three yards, or to walk barefoot over red-hot ploughshares, In each case, the wound would then be bound in cloth and sealed for three days, after which the limb would be bared and examined in the presence of witnesses. The iron would be blessed and prayed over at the trial, so that it should be a pleasing coolness to those who carry it with justice and fortitude, but a burning fire to the wicked, which suggests that the truly innocent should emerge unharmed, and that initially at least any evidence of burn or scolding would be deemed proof of guilt. However, later texts speak of a diseased discharge, and if this is found in the mark of the iron, let him be led forth guilty. If, however, it is clean, let praise and glory be given to God. That is, if the burn were healing well, it was proof enough of innocence. Those lower in status than the Anglo-Saxon freemen, such as husbandmen, face the less honourable ordeal of cold water, tied wrist to ankle or thumb to toe and immersed in deep water. Post-conquest, one detailed ritual was laid down. If anyone has been accused of theft and he denies having done it, on Tuesday at Vespers, let him be led to the church for the purpose of purging himself, clothed in woollen garments and walking barefoot. And there, that is, in the church, let him remain until the Sabbath day with legal guardians, making a three-day fast on unleavened barley bread and water and salt and watercress. On the Sabbath day, when the Mass is finished, let the man be stripped not only of his woollen garments, but also of his undergarments, And let him be girded about the loins with new linen cloth, lest his genitals be seen. And let him be covered until the hour or time with a cloak or cape because of the cold. And so let him be led to the pool of water with procession and litany. Let the accuser and the defendant swear oaths, such as those about to engage in judicial combat swear. And let the hands of the accused be tied together under his bent knees. Then let a rope strong enough to hold him be bound around his loins, and let there be made a knot in the rope at the length of his longer hair, and thus let him be lowered into the water gently, lest the water be disturbed. If he sinks to the knot, let him be drawn out as saved. If not, however, let him be adjudged as guilty by those watching." Other written rituals aren't quite so detailed and talk of the accused being plunged into the water. But again, if they sink, let them be considered guiltless. If they float, let them be judged guilty. Although for most of us, this ordeal of water is most closely associated with its later use by self-proclaimed witch finders in the 16th and 17th centuries, women probably weren't subject to it originally. Records for the years between 1194 and 1208 show seven women being sent for ordeal and all undergoing the trial of hot iron. It's possible this was done for reasons of modesty but one theory is it was a matter of mercy. Women with a higher proportion of body fat are far more likely than men to float and accordingly far more likely to be found guilty by a water test so they were given instead a better chance of being acquitted. There was a surprisingly high rate of acquittal for the trial by hot iron. Early 13th century records from Hungary show that of 308 trials, some 210 accused were declared innocent. Just as with trial by combat, since these ordeals were appeals to God, they were overseen by the Church. The trials of hot iron actually took place in church and it was the priest's role to determine guilt or innocence on examining the wound. Again, one ritual was set down post-conquest giving precise detail as to the priest's duties. After accusation has been legitimately made and a three-day period completed in fast and prayer, let the priest, dressed in holy garments, with a pair of tongs take the iron placed before the altar and singing the Benedicite Omnia Opera, carry it to the fire. Let him place the iron in the fire and sprinkle it with holy water. And while it heats up, let him celebrate mass. Then let the priest say a prayer over the iron, which has been taken off the fire and laid on wood. Afterwards, let the gospel be read. Once the gospel has been read, let the priest sprinkle holy water over the iron the clergy themselves had a somewhat less exacting ordeal if accused, for they had to eat, or try to eat, what was known as the morsel of execration. The legal commentator Sir William Blackstone, writing in the 18th century, defined it as, "'A piece of cheese or bread of about an ounce in weight, which was consecrated with a form of exorcism,' desiring of the Almighty that it might cause convulsions and paleness and find no passage if the man was really guilty, but might turn to health and nourishment if he was innocent. There is, of course, a psychological element here, since a pious man feeling guilty about his offending might well suffer a dry mouth and consequently be unable to swallow stale bread. And that bread wouldn't be the fluffy white stuff of our time, of course, but lightly dense barley bread, dark, coarse, heavy and dry, in the words of Elizabeth David, the renowned cookery writer. I've not discovered any research into how many clergy were accused and found guilty by this test, but one tale, alas, almost certainly apocryphal, has Earl Godwin, father of Harold Godwinson, the defeated king at the Battle of Hastings, meeting his doom in 1053 from a secular ad hoc version of the trial, Since at a banquet with his son-in-law, Edward the Confessor, with whom he was not on the best of terms, Godwin is supposed to have said, "'May this crust, which I hold in my hand, pass through my throat and leave me unharmed, to show that I was guiltless of treason towards you, and that I was innocent of your brother's death,' whereupon he choked on the crust and died, so much for hubris and tempting fate." With the exception of that trial by bread, these ordeals seemed to us brutal, even barbaric, but they were an improvement on what came before in the Anglo-Saxon world, namely no trial at all, only the law of the sword and private revenge, and with it, the ever-present risk of blood feuds escalating into all-out warfare, albeit latterly tempered by the concept of wergild or blood price, whereby an offence could be settled by the payment of compensation. But for some first offenders, there was an alternative to trials by ordeal, namely compagation or trial by oath. Its first requirement was easy. The accused had to swear on oath asserting his innocence. By the Lord, I am guiltless, both in deed and counsel of the charge. The slightly more difficult part, which is where some accused came unstuck, was to assemble enough men to appear on his behalf and swear By the Lord, the oath is clean and unperjured, which he hath sworn. Nothing more was needed. No evidence, no investigation, just the man's denial, and the compurgators, those vouching for him, swearing on oath that he was truthful. To modernise, this seems almost farcical as a method of justice. We'd expect a guilty man to lie and his family and friends to support him regardless of the truth. Certainly by the 12th century there was similar scepticism and restrictions were drawn up around the compurgation. Yet we are undoubtedly missing the importance of oath-taking to the Anglo-Saxon mind. It is not merely a matter of integrity and of the guilt of perjury if the oath is falsely given. An oath is calling out to God as witness and calling down God's wrath if one lied. Interestingly enough, Over a thousand years later, the echoes of this trial by oath still reverberate in the English legal system. Most obviously, the majority of people giving evidence in court still swear on oath, using a holy book, though since 1695, those unable or unwilling to swear, such as Quakers, may affirm instead. In addition, those vouching for the accused under the trial by oath are obvious precursors of our present-day character witnesses, who gives sworn testimony as to the accused virtues, such as his or her honesty and integrity. Although the number of compagators or oath-helpers required varied, depending on the accused's rank and what was alleged, it settled down eventually to the accused securing his acquittal with just 12 men. And if that number rings a bell, it should do. It's arguably the very beginnings of the English jury system. Notwithstanding the inadequacy of these trials of ordeal and oath as a means of achieving justice, one advantage was that they brought finality. If God had decreed someone was innocent or had not struck down an oath-taker for lying, who was man to gainsay him? Well, in fact, from early on there were people who understood that trial by combat was flawed. And certainly after the conquest, although the old Anglo-Saxon laws remained in place for the most part, With a greater drive to centralisation and the growing sophistication of the courts, the old ways began to be reconsidered. Certainly William Rufus, son of the Conqueror and his heir in England, wasn't convinced that the Almighty was minded to intervene in trials by ordeal. "'What is this?' he demanded, on learning that some fifty men accused of crimes against his forest lords had all been deemed innocent. "'God is a just judge!' May he perish who henceforth believes that. complegation seems to have been the main method of justice immediately after the conquest, though a legal treatise of around 1118 said the ordeal of Hot Iron was to be offered as an alternative because of the harassings committed by evil men and the conspiracy of perjurers. And it was actually required if the accused was himself extremely untrustworthy, or was accused by three people at the same time, or the oath helpers wouldn't support him, or if he were friendless or a foreigner. Then in 1166, the Assize of Clarendon set out that certain accused, murderers, robbers and thieves, had to be put to the trial of cold water. But Henry II seems to have had reservations about it, for the ordeal was not available to those taken in possession of the spoils of robbery or theft or those of evil repute or who confessed to the crime that is notorious or obvious offenders weren't to be given a way out of conviction by appealing to god through the ordeal and anyone of ill repute who did undertake the trial and was acquitted was then required to abjure the realm elsewhere on the continent Reason and intelligence were used to argue against the continuance of trials by ordeal. In 1231, they were banned in Sicily on the order of Emperor Frederick II, with ignorant beliefs in their efficacy being summarily dismissed. The simple-minded believe that the element of cold water will not receive a guilty man on account of his bad conscience, when, in fact, it is the retention of sufficient air that does not allow him to sink. By this time theological arguments against trials of ordeal had also overcome opposition and the 4th Lateran Council of 1215 removed all clerical oversight from them, ending their spiritual legitimacy. Four years later the jury system in England was established with the trial by petty jury. And that's a subject for another talk. So how are we to bring any of this arcane trial law into our writings? For those of us writing fantasy in a world similar to early medieval Europe, certainly trial by combat can be used to good effect, as by George Martin in A Song of Ice and Fire. But there's no need to restrict that trial to the nobility as there, and as it was in France in reality, but instead have it available to all ranks of society and show it in all its sordid brutality as I discussed in March. The other trials by ordeal would also give depth to medieval world-building, with opportunities for all kinds of characters to be involved, the most obvious being a healer who ensures the cloths bandaging a scalded arm are impregnated with salves, or the accused's enemy who arranges for the cloths to be filthy and promote infection. There is also much that could be done with a priest or other official overseeing the trial, and the possible arguments and recriminations when he interprets the test. One Icelandic saga deals with a girl who undergoes trial by hot iron to prove she's telling the truth about who made her pregnant. When her hand is unbandaged, the saga records that the priest was slow to decide. The man representing the putative father promptly yells, Why are you such a blot on your father's name that you don't state outright that her hand is burned? While the man representing the girl who just happens to be the other man's enemy, accuses the priest of having taken a bribe to speak against her. The priest counters with, "'It's out of order for you two to pronounce the judgment and take the case out of my hands. The decision is mine to make.' And then says the girl must undergo the trial again to make things clear, a solution which simply further alienates the two sides and ends in armed conflict. So, one pregnant girl leads to out-and-out warfare via a trial by ordeal.' who couldn't make an exciting story out of that. Perhaps your world is on the cusp of creating a better judicial system with your valiant legal hero leading the change, but opponents want the trials of ordeal to continue, particularly the might is right ethos of trial by combat. Or perhaps you have a group of people such as firewalkers who can undertake seemingly miraculous feats without harm. How would trials of ordeal evolve to counter them? Don't dismiss trials by ordeal because you're not writing European-based fantasy. Similar systems have existed in other countries at different times, including India, the Levant, West Africa and Iran. Nor dismiss the idea because your fantasy is set in the equivalent of later centuries with more sophisticated legal systems. Compagation, that swearing on oath without other evidence, remained in certain matters such as actions for debts until the 19th century in England. And trial by combat itself was a legal option here until as late as 1819. Indeed, it was only abolished then because a suspected rapist and murderer challenged his accuser to a duel and went free when the accuser was sensible enough not to fight the brute. Trials by ordeal can also be relevant in any world with a dominant religion, especially one where central secular authority is weak, whether in fantasy or dystopian science fiction, if the people believe their God or gods can intervene in their lives to demonstrate guilt or innocence. Even if religious faith isn't strong, perhaps the authorities have an understanding of psychology so they know an accused might reveal his or her guilt in how the trial or ordeal is undertaken or recovery from it afterwards. Every society produces laws and a system of justice, so it's an integral part of all world building. Think how yours may have evolved and what.
0: The April 75 word challenge was on the topic of liminality, and the genre was Anything Goes. It was won by M. Rose Nagel, with her entry Hair of the Dog. Hair of the Dog by M. Rose
5: Nagel. Ding ding! The alchemist looked up, and his stomach flopped. What is that? Bristly fur poked out of its pores, human teeth crowded in its long snout. On hind legs with people toes, the disturbing creature shambled up to the counter. It's a long story, it sighed. Anyway, I can't seem to turn human or werewolf now. Got anything for that? The alchemist did! Actually, hair of the dog to leave inhibition behind for good.
4: Hello, and welcome to Mars Radio 14, the third best radio station in the Martian Space Force. My name is Lieutenant Bungalow of the Martian Space Force, and today myself and Captain Half-Milk Carton here have been joined by the great Martian explorer, Bongalon Chupstow, who is the first Martian to have set foot on Venus, ooh, and who has just returned from Venus, ooh. Welcome to Mars Radio 14. What they do is constrict the blood flow to their ears to warm
7: up or if they get cold and I have to say that is not often the case as it is hot on Venus for most of the year but if they do, they dilate the blood flow which gives them a chance to cool down. Ah, for
4: obliging's sake, Bungalow. I thought you said this fellow would be great in an interview. I did. I, I mean, he is half milk god. That's all really valuable information. Really valuable. I mean, no Martian is known apart from Mister Jumpstone. I mean, until now, that is, because no Martian has ever been on Venus before. Oh. Right,
5: okay, well then can you explain to him how radio works? Like, you know, maybe introduce what he's going to say. So the Martians listen might have some sort of clue what he's rapping on about. Ah, yeah, okay, fair enough,
4: Half-Milkorn. I will,
5: I'll start again. My name is Lieutenant Bungalow! By the nine triangles of Funk? Have you asteroids in your head? Skip that bit. Just start by maybe, I dunno, asking the fella how he got to Venus and what the
4: first thing he saw was. Oh. Oh, yeah, right, okay, I see half-milk art. Hello, Bongolan Chubstow. Now, I know we were talking before the show started, but the listeners, (laughs) they don't have a freaking clue what you were saying during that time because they couldn't hear you, of course, yeah. So, could you tell them just how you got to Venus?
7: I used a rocket. Right. Yes.
4: And, yeah, okay, so, you know, what was the first thing you saw when you landed?
7: Ooh. Venusians.
4: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, what do they
5: look like,
7: you know? The Venusians?
5: Ah, uh, for obligo's sake, Chubstow. Of course, the Venusians. You were just talking about them.
7: Well, they had very long ears relative to their body size and incredibly fast and agile with large hind legs and claws, and they eat their own excrement. What? Big ears, probably so they can hear predators approaching. Oh, and they sleep with their eyes open. My guess is that it is also an evolutionary trait which developed to alert them to approaching predators while they slept.
4: What's this about eating excrement? Oh, that's just something they do to help with the fermentation of the grasses and leafy plants they eat. They're, they're herbivores, you know. There are no plants on Venus. You're right, Half-Milk Carton. Huh? There's, there's not, huh? Mr. Chubb Did these Venusians live in, you know, holes they burrowed into the ground? Yes. And how many planets out from the sun did you say Venus was? Three. So the one next door to us?
7: Yes.
5: Right. So tell me this. Did you ever think that the Venus you landed on might have been Earth, and the Venusians you might have seen might have been rabbits?
7: No. Although, come to think of it, it might have been Earth. I'm always getting those suits mixed up. They look so similar.
5: Right. Well, let me clear it up for you. If you find yourself hastily compressing and vaporizing to death, then there's a good chance you're on Venus. And you're probably on Earth if you find yourself watching fast, agile creatures eating
7: their own dirt. Oh, I like to be like that.
5: Be like which? Fast and agile or sitting around eating your own muck?
7: I've tried eating my own muck. It's rotten. Your best bet is to add a bit of Tantoo and butter.
5: Ha, for obligon's sake. Eh? We leave it there, folks.
7: Welcome
0: back to the show. We're here with RJ Barker. We've dug around with Watership Down, uh, and we're going to have a little chat with RJ about his his work, his career, uh, maybe a little bit of heavy metal if we get the time. Uh, We'll start with Gods of the Weirdwood, I think, because that's um, quite nicely timed. This episode is going yeah. to be coming out around about the same time as Gods of the Weirdwood. Uh, the release date is it the end of June, RJ?
2: June the 27th. June the 27th.
0: There you go. Yes. So this episode is coming out uh, a little bit before that, so just in time to get some pre-orders in. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I know you mentioned it a teensy bit earlier yeah. about the setting, but give us the lowdown um, on it.
2: Well, I, de- I describe Watch It Down as some rabbits go somewhere and i would describe once the weirdwood as a man doesn't go anywhere um <laughs> i
0: think you need to work work on your elevator pitch
2: yeah yeah um, uh, it's, it's it's kind of robin hood uh, and but it exists in a world that's nothing like ours it, it they don't have metal and <laughs> I, 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 I really, not not heavy metal, actual metal. Oh right, um, yeah. <laughs> I thought you did um, Okay, no, no, that, um, who that, wants to live in a my, world what, with no heavy metal? Yeah, yeah. what a well-built thing that would be. But it, it's it's basically it's a story of a man who was the chosen one. Literally, he was the farm boy that the priests came and they said, "You are the one, um, and, and you are going to make our world better," because their um tilts, so one one side is cold and one side is hot depending on how it's tilted um, but basically whoever's in power, they, they just keep it tilted their way so they're having a lovely time and then the other people are having a terrible time and they eventually get angry and there's an uprising and a war and then they tilt it the other way and it all starts again um, and there's a, a kind of warrior class who can use magic who are just awful and will kill you for fun because they're, they're not nice um, but Khan was meant to be the one who tilted the world back and he got to about 15. He didn't really want to be this person. It was quite a brutal training regime. And then suddenly it turned out it wasn't him. It was someone else. Um, and everyone was gone. And he just didn't know what to do. And And he had all this power that he, he hadn't fully learned to use. And bad things ensue. Um, and then you meet him in his, his probably late 30s. And he's a hermit living on his own in the middle of this wood, and he just wants to be left alone. But life is not. No, it's not going to let him be alone. Uh, And at its heart, it's about somebody running from something, and running from who they really are, and the fact that they can't escape it.
0: Well, I like the sound of it already. So, so even though the responsibility evaded him when he mm -hmm. thought that it was his to take up. It finds him eventually in some other form. That's what it sounds like.
2: Yeah, but on a, on a much smaller scale.
0: Or, well, yeah, but that's no. Nece- yeah. I guess that's not necessarily yeah. any less important. No, the you know, responsibility scales up and down, doesn't it's- it?
1: Now you've now you said it, and from what I've read, I'm going to provide my. Pitch for the book, and you tell me how horribly wrong this is.
0: Well, it can't, <laughs> it
1: can't be any it's... worse than RJ's own pitch for the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's a man who doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like Rosemary Sutcliffe decided to write Star Wars, except Luke Skywalker was trying to avoid everything instead of running towards it.
2: Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And, and it's the the whole book is kind of this extended metaphor of him. That that's what it's about. It's about somebody trying to run away and not being able to. And there's a village near that he wants nothing to do with. And very slowly he starts to create bonds with people, and realise that maybe maybe it's something he needs. And and, and that sort of grows. And then <clears throat> we end up with kind of I don't I don't know how far you've got, Pete.
0: I don't know. I don't think it's a spoilery type of book, to be honest with you. It it's if, not... if it feels like just from this small snippet, and I. Not read, obviously, a word. I don't have a, re- a review right. copy. Feels like we know where this is going, yeah, in a broad yeah. sense, you know, yeah. not knowing yeah. any of the characters, we don't know the characters, but mm. we, we can tell where this is going. Yeah. And it's already, you know, even though we know roughly what the template of the narrative is going to be, it's going, it's not going to be any less compelling for that. And people watch Star Wars, like, yeah, Beans watched yeah. Star Wars probably like 50 times, and he. It, he it, doesn't love it any less for not for knowing where yeah. it's going to go yeah. so it sounds like it could be a, a really compelling story it's, and that story that, of adoption of responsibilities <clears throat> is yeah. is the same as hazel isn't it yeah. doesn't necessarily want it and then gets it, it
2: kind of ends with what i like to describe as the single samurai um if, if you've seen sort of the end of kurisawa's seven samurai that scene um i i, I love that it's one of my favourite things, and I kind of recreated it, except there's just one of them. There's only one block that's been brought in. Um, so, but, and that kind of is where it builds up to. But there's a lot of mental stuff going on in the background that that is building up for what's going to happen in the other books. Because I'm I you think to you're meant to be giving some head
1: scratches right now.
2: Yeah, and he'll bite me if I do. <laughs> <laughs> He's an awful cat. I, t- I love him. I absolutely love him. Yeah, yeah. He's he's, he's terrible. He, he's he's not ever usually this affectionate or noisy. It's because we're talking about rabbits.
0: That's what yeah, it is. Yeah, he
2: does not approve of talking about rabbits. Yeah. He's, don't, can you see? He's doing a prop. see the proper. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and it, it's kind of the most world buildy thing I've done. is go to the weirdwood, and I think. The story is relies on the world rather than.
1: Yes, it's but, very well building yeah, forwards.
2: Yeah, and, and, and it's it's really deliberate in a really odd way, and I wanted I wanted to write this book that was really really layered because where it's going to go is not. It's going to surprise people. What, what's what's happening later on down the line? And it's all in that first book.
0: Okay. But, yeah. um, so there's lots of I foreshadowing going on.
2: Yeah, lots of but foreshadowing and lots of stuff that I guess
0: worked. quite subtle foreshadowing that makes sense yeah. retro retroactively.
2: Yeah. And, and and it's it's it's
0: an extended character study as well of this man who who well, does, was, I mean I think I'm thinking about it, I'm sort hmm. of racking my brain saying what did what did you say the character's name was? Khan. Kahan. Kahan, oh, Kahan. In
2: hair. he's called, yeah. Kahan.
0: Okay. I mean that that's a fairly old I'm pretty sure the story I'll go back to my sort of literature one oh one here, but when we I studied the Bible in my first year, or at least the parts of the Old Testament, and the story of Abraham is essentially the same story as what mm. you're saying here with Kahan. Because yeah. he um he's born into a uh, promise, let's say, but he doesn't do anything with it, and he's an old man by the time he's called to adventure. And then he goes out and encounters tyranny and disaster and catastrophe and plague and famine and all of that stuff. But it's, it's an, you know, it's an old story. I, I guess, it, again, it's saying that responsibility will find you even if you don't want it to. And the sooner you adopt it voluntarily, again, like, like Hazel going up to Kehar, the seagull, if you do it voluntarily, yeah. you're going to get Your the reward out of it.
2: Your world is good. And, and it, it is that, and, and just. It's a it's a really weird book for me. Is is God's the weird because I I wrote it during lockdown and my my health is kind of up and down. It's quite bad and I cannot see this book for that. I, I really struggle with it ed read it and he went yeah it's it, it's visionary. it's brilliant but he's my agent and he has to say that and this, is, we,
0: this awesome. is ed wilson yeah we we, we yeah. like ed he's his friends podcast yeah. we've had him on he talked mm. about i don't know if you listen to it he he talked about house, house of, leaves of leaves with us yeah 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 it was it was great fun yeah, he's dared me to read it he's dead Wait, you, oh you you must read it you I, must I'm, read I'm house in of leaves it. it's, it's insane
2: it's so good. yeah I've, I've ordered it but yeah I, 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 I find Gods of really difficult to describe. It's it's really odd because it doesn't... I don't think it quite fits into any of the fantasy things that are going on at the moment. It, it's There seems to be
1: quite a trend for talking about gods in the old sense, hmm. and obviously that's yeah. in the name and um, a lot of the early book. So I kind of see it fitting there, but, I mean, oh, I'm, really? I'm going to have to wait until I read the whole thing, but it is it is a bit different that's for sure and it's i mean i think the big thing for me is um again that sense of staticness there's so hmm. much of fantasy that's about going places and this is yeah i think you saw like when you're saying as well build the world makes sense and it's like exploring the world but um i mean i i'm curious as to whether there was anything you were trying to do with this book that you, like, couldn't fit into past books or you, like, read, looked at your past books and was like, that was fun, but now I want to do this. Because there's something that strikes me about your career is, like, you're very restless as an author. Like, yeah, this is your third fantasy world, your second genre, although we don't talk about your alter ego. Um
2: no. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I was curious as there's any deliberate like impulses you were trying to get out here.
2: i d I'm not I'm not sure I'm a very deliberate person. I just know that I want to do something different when I, I started it. Um the weirdest thing is about Gods of the Weirdwood is what I wanted to write was a really fast paced kind of Robin Hood pastiche that was really easy to read. and, and I've failed on a spectacular level to, to do that. <laughs> It's, it's it's not often I tell other um, other writers that
1: yeah you you fail but yeah, yeah. in in the <laughs> best possible way <laughs> yeah but yeah.
2: <laughs> but, but it's it's kind of this what I'm trying to do is I, I think one of the earliest things I read in, in fantasy that there's a few books that had a big as well as Watch It Down and um, the C.J. Cherry's um, mm-hmm. game books yeah which had a course. massive effect on me and, and definitely. Um, they're they're there in both the Assassin books and um, the Bone Ships, Tide books. Um, The other one is the Second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Um, I never read the other ones. Um, Because I was always skint, so all my reading was done from charity shops and I picked up all three of the Second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant.
0: Uh, So so just to be clear, you haven't read the first trilogy of that? No,
2: no, and I knew nothing about...
0: Yeah, some it's it's a staggering of piece of work. In fact, we yeah. we should be covering Lord Fowl's Bane at some point in the show.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's and I, I think that's Weirdwood's probably its closest thing hmm. in that you have a hero who refuses to pick up the mantle. Um, and in the, in the way Thomas Covenant will, uh, that you spend the entire trilogy screaming at and just use the ring, you idiot. Um. And 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 Kahan is, is somewhat similar to that in that he's he's frustrating, but it's a study of a man who's very scared. I think and scared of himself and what what he can do and what he's done and that that fascinates me. And a, a study of someone who desperately wants a friend, um, but doesn't know that that turns up a lot in my fiction.
1: Yeah, um, again, very very Gerton.
2: Yeah yeah it's it's very i think that comes up I, I don't know why um but maybe i desperately want a friend and uh, but um uh, there's a writer called mark catley who's a tv writer uh, and i before I, just before i got published um i went on a course for theatre writing that he ran and he told me the best thing about characters which, which i just never thought about consciously before and he just said every character should have um what they need and what they actually want um and what they need is is often at odds with what they want because Kahan thinks he wants to be left alone. That that is desperately what he wants and, and what he will tell everybody. But what he needs is is somebody to say, look, it's gonna be alright, mate. We we can we can get through this yeah. if we if we do it together and burst into song. Um and but but it's that and it is his journey towards acceptance and that uh, with power. With great power comes great responsibility, and all of that, that sort of thing. But I think I kind of got lost in the woods in it as well. I, I love the woods in it.
0: But there's, there's, you know, there's. You said you implied earlier that you're a discovery writer, and there's great fun yeah. when you're writing yeah. in getting lost in in the world, and yeah. you know, there's, 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 especially when you're writing genre fiction. There's huge scope for getting lost d- in the world, and as long as the writing, you know, the, we're often told you shouldn't. You know, pad things up with too much world building, but if it's beautifully done, and if it's immersive, then yeah, that... you know, not everything has to. And I again, I haven't read it, but not everything has to always be driving the plot. Things can exist just to be beautiful and to, to be immersive. And
2: I, th- I think it is quite a pretty book. And when I when I go back and I'm not good at reading my stuff, I can't go back to my books. Um, but every so often I have to go back because so I'll be doing a reading from them. And when I go back and read them, I go, oh, yeah, that, that that writing is is pretty. But it's so, it's too, <clears throat> I don't know whether any other writers have talked about this. There, there's the run-up to releasing a book is just like somebody turning screws in the back of your head. And you go slightly mental. It's like doing a PhD. Everyone I know that's done a PhD has gone slightly mental towards the end of it. Um, and releasing a book is quite similar. Because you, you, can, you can know something's good. But because it's art, you don't know if the people will will get that from it.
1: Yes. Yeah. What well, your entire
0: life? Yeah. 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 There's there's always a certain yeah. amount of like, there is the cliche of the artist bearing their soul, but and I think there's also you know, especially for writers, there's an at least a sort of quasi or semi autobiographical element to a lot of stuff that's written you know how How else could it be you pour yourself or aspects of yourself into into a book so it does make sense you know that it's being poured over and taken apart and put back together again by well, essentially industry yeah. before it's released onto <laughs> the public and then the public has its way with it as well
3: yeah.
2: but it's quite it's quite weird as well because I'm like 50 odd thousand words into the third book now I, and I'm really pleased with the second book and, and the third one. And it's always the first book. Uh, where, <clears throat> I said to my editor, I said, oh, God, I, I don't know what people can make of this book. I don't even know if it's a good book. Um, she pointed out that I've said that for every book I've released, every single one I've sat there and gone, no, this is the worst. It's terrible. It's a, it's a terrible book. And she just says, you have no chill until it's out. And then I'm like, all yeah. right, okay. It's a weird thing to do, be a writer.
0: Um, well i yeah, it is it's you know i I don't hold much truck with the false modesty mm. thing, but it's a terrible mm. book a, if you believed it was truly terrible, you probably wouldn't no. have submitted it in the first place, so no. I think no. we uh, as after you've written a certain amount, mm. you get to understand it's got some you know it's got some merits, I think this is as Philip Pullman once said, it's good enough, you know it gets well, to a certain level it's good enough, I can submit that and then the editors can have their way with it. and da-da-da-da-da. It's a really
2: weird thing that, that I, I, you know on a, on a technical level that it, it's of a level. Mm. And, and I know that <clears throat> I joke about Ed, but if Ed had read it, he'd be coming back to me and managing my expectations if he thought it was terrible. And also the maid is Jenny would not have released it. She'd just turn around and said, no, we have to, yep. this is not good. Yeah. So you, you know all of that, yeah. but it doesn't make any difference. You just feel like, <laughs> but, but what if actually no one noticed? But I, I, I know it's a good book as well, and I know that I yeah. really, I struggled writing it, but I really kind of was deep into it in a really joyous way. It's, it's really, it's, it's such a complicated thing to, because what, what I do is that I write these big, quite difficult to write fantasy things because there's depths and layers and layers and layers of world in them that comes out later on. Um, and this is the most of that I think, um, and then in between I, I write the books that are just like froth, and I don't knock them out <laughs> I don't. Like, yeah, that, that was, well, that, that's my holiday.
0: Just, this is your, these are your, um, your alter ego books, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. But yeah. R.J. I've, Dark.
0: Who, I've, not, I've not, I've not looked at those. Should I? Or is it kind Thank of there know. be monsters type thing?
2: Thank no, you. no. <laughs> the, uh, I, d- I dearly love them. Have you ever um, come across Happen Leonard? Um, no, Joelle Lansdale's Happen Leonard books. Um, I don't think so. They
0: are crime crime novels.
2: Crime novels, yeah. They're they're um they're they're about a couple of lads who live on a council estate, and um, one of them's a medium, but he's not. He's a con artist, um, but he's kind of got a good heart. He's he's doing it. He's trying to help people along in life, and the other one is um a Sikh gangster who, who's a borderline psychopath um, and, and they just get themselves in trouble and they're trying to do the right thing uh, and they're joyous to write because they're just like, oh, I can create as much chaos as I want and you don't have to build a world because it's our yeah. world and it already exists. Um, and I just fly through them and I write.
3: Yeah, I've also fun. got
2: like, I think three other books with Ed at the moment, a fantasy one, crime one and something else stuff i
0: which just I write a lot I love to do it it's, it's... so how tell us tell us how you fell into writing then because you said you did a bit of rock music earlier on in your life uh, that didn't work out as it doesn't for most of us <laughs> um, but then you went into writing so how I often find that that people who have an artistic temperament <clears throat> have more than one string to their bow. So if they're, if they're a writer, they might be, you know, a proficient musician or they might yeah. be, you know, quite good at, at visual arts or, or something else like that. I'd, I'd love to say that I was a proficient
2: musician. Well, uh, okay. Was, uh, you have a
0: musical um, temper. Let's I, put it, let's yeah. put it diplomatically. Enthusiastic.
2: Re- really good on a stage. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I always had books. I always read and, um, <clears throat> And then I I fell in. I saw Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, a video of it when I was Mm. about 14. And I just thought, I I want to do that.
0: That's
2: it. I I want to do that. And promptly, more or less, stopped going to school. Um,
0: Oh, so you, you... You yeah, meant it, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny because Appetite for Destruction was my gateway drug as well. Yeah, I think it was. was so a... so of its time, and so mm. sort of punk. That sort of skirted that line between punk and metal, didn't it?
2: Yeah, and I don't think people now realise how aggressive and it's glam like as been well as well. Yeah, and 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 real. I think that's the thing about um. Kit Power, a friend of mine, was saying he was making fun of people who liked the Smiths because Morrissey turned out to be awful, and then he said. But but I really like Guns N' Roses. So can I even say that? I, but I, I always say that, that yeah yeah you can because Guns N' Roses never lied to you. They, exactly, they, they were quite yeah. upfront about the fact that they were horrid. There was just um, but but yeah. Anyway, and I played in bands and I was terrible. I was just not what did you audition. play?
0: What were you? Guitar. I play bass, oh, bass.
2: played bass guitar. Okay. Yeah, because I thought it was the easiest. It's not the easiest. It's not. No, no, it's not. <laughs> you need a really good sense of rhythm, and I don't. Um, but I had a really good time. And then I ended up in, in a band that were actually very good um, with a friend of mine who was incredibly talented guitarist. And eventually I realised I couldn't keep up. And I just said, look, I, after this is not making me happy, um, I, I'm going to go and do something different. And I did in about a week later, he rang me and said, look, you might not be the best musician, but you're the heart of the band. Come back. We need you here. We'll just write just write simpler stuff for you. And I came back and rehearsed. And at the end of it, he went, actually, I think you had a point. So <laughs> <laughs> <how> you get. <laughs> so he could have <laughs> just invited you
1: back to be their Chaz smash. That would have worked better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the bears. That could have been the bears. I'm, yeah, I'm you could have been bears. Bottom. Yeah, just cool it with the maracas for a bit. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, it, <clears throat> I thought, well, I can't. I don't want to work in a call center all my life, and that was literally
0: all I was qualified to do. That that is a bit of a USP, isn't it? A goth Uh bez. Do you have any goth with with maracas at the front of the band doing some dancing?
2: Never been done. That would be different. Needs, but also can't dance. The bez blesses. No, no bez. Can't dance. Um, But I've never been one for drugs, and I think that I think you really need the drugs to to, to do that. But um, bez certainly needed the drugs. I decided that I'd become a novelist. That was mm. what I decided, um, which I immediately bred not going to school. Um, cause I had to teach myself how to write and, and I did, and I made that decision that I would be published by a big publisher or nothing. And that was what I was going to do. And it took 13 years, um, from that decision. Which well, this is, this is, this is
0: a, a good, a lot of our audience are writers, whether they, yeah. some of them have been published. Um, I would say the majority have not, um, but it's, I think it's instructive to hear that, that you say you had to, A, that you had to teach yourself, B, that it took 13 years. And I'm guessing a fair amount of failure along the way
2: yeah. to get to, a,
0: to where you are now.
2: A weird failure. Cause I, I never I, I never really submitted stuff. I think I submitted two or three manuscripts in that entire time. Quite a lot of short stories. I once got paid $5. That was my entire earning in the 13 years before I saw my first novel. Nice. Um, and I always had this odd belief, because everything in my life has just sort of kind of happened in, in a, a slightly left-of-centre way rather than the way you're meant to do it, Yeah, that that was how things would happen. And um, <clears throat> it was actually Simon Spanton, who used to work for Galance, saw a short story I'd written called The Shepherd um, on my blog and said, that's too good. Can I put that on the Galanx blog? Because if you leave it where on your blog, no one will ever see it. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Thanks,
2: Simon, um, <laughs> for the backhanded compliment. Um, and then he said, have you got anything else that I can look at? And I sent him something, and, and he didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, but he sent it to one of his authors who he thought would like it, and they did. And they passed it to their agent, who who's um, called Rob. And he came back to me and said, have you got anything else? And I sent him a science fiction novel I'd worked on. And, it, and he came back and said, right, the first third of this is brilliant, and the rest of it is awful. Um, but we, we can fix it. Uh, and I think I was kind of his wild card. He, he just kind of thought, y- you are just doing what you want to do. <laughs> You're not not really paying attention to what people are telling but this you to this
0: do. this is instructive as well, because hmm. I think a lot of writers and certainly a lot of the writers we talk to extremely hung up about the the rules, the framework hmm. that you have to adhere to in order to to write a novel. I've always maintained I'm, I, I've, I see a lot of myself in you actually because i'm I never sort of trained in it um, I'm what you might call an enthusiastic amateur. You yeah. know, I had to learn it from the ground up, basically based upon my of vast, extensive reading catalogue. Mm. Uh, but there is a, there is room for the enthusiastic amateur yeah. who can bring what they, if they are truly believing in it and they are willing to learn and take on different perspectives and learn from the ground up, you can actually make it. And if you've got that specific goal, you said you had that specific goal, I am going to be traditionally published. Yeah going to go with a big publishing house or bust, Monte and, Carlo or bust. And it so it, you can do it, but it took you 13 years. Yeah. And, it and sounds and like I a lot of
2: slog. Yeah, I didn't get that with Rob. We we put out the, the science fiction novel and lots of people read it. And, and I got the the best turn down I've ever had. And I think it's from Orbit who said, we already have Ian Banks, we don't need the next one. And I was just
0: like... <laughs> mm that's pretty good <laughs>
2: yeah you can turn me down for that would have been even better if somebody else had liked it but no one did um <laughs> and, and then kind of <clears throat> rob, I, I wrote age of assassins in six weeks because i i'd been on sub and i couldn't write while i was on submission it, it just sort of froze my brain and as soon yeah. as it came out i like, sort of i'm gonna write a book and i wrote this book and um i sent it off to rob and he came back to me and said i've got good news and bad news um good news is I think this is good. It's got something bad news is um, I'm letting you go. And, I thought, oh. and it was because he was downsizing his agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gave me a list of agents and I sent stuff to these agents uh, and I heard nothing for ages. And, and eventually I got back into it and said, I'm going to try some, try some more agents. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you knew any of them. And he said, oh yeah, they, they should be fine. And then he said, and you should contact Ed Wilson. And I was, who? And he said, oh, literary horror on Twitter. And I'd seen him on Twitter and just thought, oh, literary horror, I'm not literary. <laughs> I, right. I can't submit to you. But Rob said, no, I think you'll get along with Ed. Just submit to him. And not one other agent got back in touch with him, but Ed was back in touch in a week.
0: I, uh, I must admit, uh, it, again, there's this perception out there that agents are, because they're the gatekeepers to the industry, mm-hmm. that they're kind of snooty and a little bit, standoffish yeah. and aloof and that you know that because you they only send you form responses and form mm. rejections that they're not that amenable and then you get somebody like ed who just sort of blows that perception out of the water
3: yeah because he's
0: so he's so he's, he he enjoys talking to writers which he, he's, is like, he's lovely you know, revolutionary <laughs> I, I love him and he's the
2: perfect agent for me because uh, he never says don't do that when i when i say i'm going to write
0: this thing go hey, okay, okay then yeah (laughs) but don't Uh, it must must be great having somebody who's got that attitude Mm. in your corner you know backing your work yeah and 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 he
2: does and and he's not frightened to sort of tell me when i'm being an idiot either he's he's quite sort of
0: he'll just go no well you need well you need that and you need to be able to to trust somebody don't Mm. you don't you don't you you don't want uh insincere flattery all the time no you know sincere praise mm. bueno but he's absolutely on my side like, um, mm.
2: and, and he's always right, which is really annoying. He, he'll say stuff and I'll think, mm, really, Ed, really? Uh, and then, yes, yeah, really. But, yeah, he, he picked a page of assassins um, uh, and uh, and he just thought, I, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this book and who will pick it up. And I was like, okay. And then, and then he sold it. Uh, and I, I received not a big advance by any amount, compared to some people but more money than i've ever seen in my entire life and it changed my life in that moment hmm. um, and it's,
0: it's I, I love it well it there you go life. because a lot, a lot of people have listened to our show because we talk to yeah. people in we talk to publishers and agents and plenty of authors and some people come back you know on the episode threads and say oh i'm so depressed because this this Writing, like, is sound is so hard, and it's great. Really, I think people listen to mm. your story, and hopefully, they'll be a little bit motivated. You know, they'll have a little bit of energy, yeah. they'll be energized, and think, Yes, it's possible. You know, it's, it not, it's not easy, but it is possible yeah. you can do it. If any, anybody's somebody got to do it, why not me? Yeah,
2: and every day I wake up and think, Oh,
0: oh fucking hell, I'm a writer.
2: I'm actually, I'm doing this and I almost never don't have, like I write Monday to Friday and I almost never have a day when I don't write, apart from I've been writing a bit less lately because I picked up Skyrim again, which is, was a mistake and I Oops. shouldn't have done it. and I'm quite cross with myself, but, but I love it. Um, I, and I, I quite often you sit down and I sit down and think, oh God, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to write or how I'm going to write. And then I, I write a thousand words and I can always do it when,
0: when I yeah. do Well, a Tade said to us last time he was on. Mm. we were talking about his writing process, and he said sometimes you just got to allow yourself to write crap. Yeah, just just, you know, there's no such thing as writer's block. I think. I think the writer's block thing is wanting to pour out something perfect in 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 the first instance, you know, fully formed, but it doesn't work Mm. like that. So somebody who's just got to vomit up what's there, and then you can sort it out later. I'm and often thought, it's not that bad. I mean, sometimes it's a bit crap, but you have to force, you know, you, once you get the bit of momentum and flow going. I, I know Taddy quite well, and, and we, we both have that
2: attitude. Um, uh, Charles Brenchley. I don't know if you know Charles, Charles Brenchley, the writer? No, no. Um, he wrote a book called Dead of Light, and he's, he's a tremendous, tremendous writer. Um, he once gave a general bit of advice that what works is what works for you, and that is the most freeing thing ever had in my life because up until yeah. that point I've been reading things and people have been going, oh, you must do this and you must do that uh, and and kind of curtailing my voice because I'm a very voicey writer in that you, you'll like it or you won't. I think that's the, the thing the thing I know with each of my books with Weirdwood. I know that there's some people going to read weird and they're going to be like, oh, I'm 100% into this. This is mental. I, I love it. And some people was going, no, not for me.
0: And that's like that. That is, but you could say that about any book, yeah. ever, couldn't you? I think, yeah, I, I, I
2: think it's a, a thing to aim at. Yeah, definitely. I think the the the, the less, the more middle of the road. I, I don't like easy. I don't, well, I no, really I, I think that you
0: should challenge yourself. I agree. Yeah, yeah,
2: and I don't what, want comfortable either in fiction. It's, struggle. it's really That's, difficult. It's really. It's yeah.
0: difficult, isn't it? Because mm. publishers often want they want comfortable yeah. because they want mm. they mm. they want something that they're pretty confident is going to sell. So they need to feel comfortable with something. Mm. Whereas the job of the artist is obviously to sort of be sort of doing that tightrope on the edge of yeah. what's known and what's not known, and when, trying to figure out what how to articulate that. When we did Burn Ships, um, mm. I, I didn't
2: pitch it. As you usually pitch things, I sent Jenny a five-page prose poem it, it written in the style of the world. Uh, and, I, and she went, "All right, my editor, Jenny." And I, and I just think she's a hero for reading that and just being, "Yeah, let's let's do this." And I think the day before it came out, <clears throat> someone, a writer friend, said to me, star, oh, all Orbit was so good putting out your book. Said, what do you mean? Well, everyone knows that shit books don't sell." I was like, "I, I didn't." Nobody told me that at any point. It wouldn't have stopped me. I, I mean, that's the book I was going to write, and that's, yeah. that's how it worked. But it, it is—it's a weird, weird world. I completely lost lost track. Pete was going to talk about Adol, though, and I didn't want to steal that from him. While well, I remember,
1: I've completely forgotten what I was going to say about him, other than. <laughs> I do absolutely love that character. Um, For me, um, Age of Assassins was one of the books when I was getting into exploring new fantasy again, rather than just rereading what I loved from my childhood was one of those books that struck me as the perfect balance of all the things that I loved. Plus a whole new attitude. Um, And I, I remember you, talking about cj cherry and it's like I, i definitely get a lot of the same atmosphere in it and i think one of the great things about it is it's not told from the view of the chosen one it's told from someone near the chosen one and the way our view of who the chosen one is or was meant to be Dances around and there's a character in the first book called Idol who's he's the heir, he's oh, a spoilt, he's a unhappy woundwalt,
3: for one mm, of a better yeah.
1: word. And the way over the books he's given an opportunity to um be in a different role, have different expectations, and the way he becomes happy within himself and is able to be the friend that Gerton was always looking for, always kind of thought he had somewhere else. But all the time, it was Idol. and he's this end of the book. He's just this big, laughable oaf who's incredibly solid as a human being. Mm. He's happy, dependable, loyal. Um, I don't know if you've read much David Gemmell.
2: I've read him. Um... I've read just the legend and the, those books. Is it Drani books? Is
1: that Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was an archetype that Gemmel loved to do based on his own stepfather of this rogue of a brawler who you wouldn't trust really with your money mm-hmm. or your drink or anything mm-hmm. else, but you would absolutely trust with your life. That was what I saw in Idol. And yeah.
3: Yeah. Huge it, it fan it was- of that character. And
2: and uh, Dan was talking about discovery writing. Yeah. Um, Ida was meant to die in the first part of the second book, and and uh, there's a scene where 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 Gerton meets him again, and what happens is not what Gerton expects it to happen, and it kind of just wrote itself. And by the end of that, I, I just. I knew exactly where he was going from that point. And I just thought, oh, you, you make total sense now. I think that's the most, most nice, nice feeling. moment
1: as a writer, when all of a sudden your plans just melt away and this new, far better plan just appears and says, hi, we've got some business to do here. And it's like, it's almost like a sacred moment.
2: Yeah, it's, ah, yeah, it. Weirdwood was really. Weirdwood is the. uh, It's kind of a magical journey as a book. That's what I'm trying to get out with it. It's. it's, I I don't know if you've you've ever read anything about it. It's the the journey of of discovery, and it's. I, I read a lot of Celtic, the old Celt myths and stuff like that. And I think there's a lot of that in it, of the dark mysteries that are out there yeah um and that, that's it's it's really odd i often don't know what a book is until i finish the entire trilogy but uh, and then i look back and i can see oh that's what it is but i, I know that, that is built built into weirdwood it it it's about <clears throat> the, the, there's the idea that you you need to be damaged to to achieve wisdom uh, and that is the process Kahan is you need to suffer to... yeah yeah and and not not necessarily physically
0: suffer you, no you, you you need to confront Well, most most suffering, most suffering mm. arguably isn't physical yeah I mean, it's physical pain but suffering is something different
2: it's 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 my it's, more, really it's
0: more existential yeah. it's it's being confronted with
3: the possibility it's a theme, of
0: despair, I suppose, isn't it? It's a theme I, I, I come back to again in,
2: and again in my work is uh, of, of you have to sort of run towards the thing that frightens you most.
0: To get Absolutely. yeah. Uh,
2: and uh, and uh, that's Joran as well. Joran is, is
0: terrified um, throughout the entire trilogy of the book. Yeah. Well, well you know. that, uh, Jung, Jung made that observation. Yeah. Uh, when he was doing his mythological studies, and he said the and uh, he 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 put it in Latin, which escapes me at the moment. But it, essentially, the thing of the the thing of greatest value is hidden in the place where you least want to look. That's good. I like that. I'm going to steal that off. Of well, you're, like, I, yes. I, yeah, <laughs> pretty, young. I mean, you, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah young, I mean, so yeah. it's, it's going to be good. But, and and the, uh, in the if you say it in the original Latin, it sounds even better. Yeah. But, um, but it, yeah, that that sort of. <clears throat> Weird, was it? Is this looping journey of this man mm-hmm. who, who keeps coming back to the same it's, place? It's so funny, you know that that idea of a looping journey, well, yeah. like a, a meta journey where the same thing keeps yeah. happening. That's that was one of the things we read into Excalibur, which is mm-hmm. essentially the same story, which is taking place over in different scales over and over again in different scenarios throughout the whole story, and it scales up and down, so it happens at a micro level. So, such as the interaction between two characters, mm-hmm. where where um, there'll be a confrontation and something dies and then it revivifies, and that happens in a, in a group of characters. So, with the Knights of the Round Table, and it also happens to the whole nation state of England. And things mm-hmm. die; they they're, they're confronted with a conflict, they die, and they revivify, and you have to confront things, and it just keeps going on and on. And it was so clever. If, if you're tapping um, tapping into that, yeah. it's so it's so funny that these. Uh, one of my favourite quotes is from Umberto Eco, the Italian hmm. writer, who's one of my favourites, and um, he wrote an essay about the intertextuality of texts, in which he argued that every book, every book, is simultaneously referencing every other book all the time. Mm. Yeah. which is another way, of, another way of sort of the, um, the Joseph Campbell archetypes, you know, of, of, of a story following a certain structure. But I think Echo puts it really nicely because the reader as the conduit, makes connections that nobody else can make. And so you can make, as I've just, you know, connected Excalibur with Weird, uh, Gods of the Weird Word. But maybe so did you without even realising it. You said it was I, I think, a massive I film think, for you.
2: Arthur is is in a lot of stuff I write, like um the the age of Assass- the assassin books are, are an Arthurian story that they, they were imagined as that, um even even to the point that um Gerton gives the king a sword, he literally sort there, there there is that and um, in my head Geron is Merlin and, and Rufe is Arthur. Um, this is the most childish thing ever and I've not told anyone officially
0: is <laughs> good we like a scoop
2: yeah it's it's um spoilery if you've not read it but um, Gerton has a friend who is the one that is going to be king but it, nobody knows he's, he's going to be the king in a traditional thing and he's called Rufra R-U-F-R-A
0: now just say it backwards I think we know where we're going with this <laughs>
2: And it was my placeholder name. I just, uh, uh, I'll just write Arthur backwards. Got and, and uh,
1: nothing like a placeholder name <laughs> that sticks.
2: Yeah. And by the end, I was just like, no, no, that's who he is. That's it. Oh. it suits him. That's, that's the right name. It, it that... is, it's going to stay. I've also that's so cool. Seen has, anybody, has
0: anybody figured that out? Somebody must have figured that out. No.
2: Really?
1: I've seen you point out on Twitter before that Ido also sounds a bit like Arthur, and also Ido is yeah. speaking, referred to as a bear. With yeah, Arthur. Yeah, <laughs> two Arthurs. Why have I'm, one when you can have two? Yeah,
2: I, and I have a friend who um, I have who I talk my books at all the way through each book. I talk, he's lovely. We play badminton and we get very little badminton, to him, but I talk my books at him, and he just takes it all. And, and um, he's responsible for the blame in Bonechips because originally I was going to have a world where it was just birds and there were wind wizards, and he said. I love the idea of those bird wind wizards. And I was, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> Birds and wind wizards. But by the time I got home and had this amazing idea uh, of these bird wizards, and I, next time I was I'm going to have bird wizards. And he was like, what, what, a, sh- what a shock. But um, he, he was an the scholar. It's what he did his PhD on. So uh, and there's a lot of stuff in the assassin books that that's like, deep Arthur stuff that he gave me. So yeah, you should put this in that I have forgotten now because I I can't keep a thought in my head
0: for, maybe it's sort of hanging in there in the subconscious somewhere. Uh, As we're talking about scoops and exclusives, tell us about the Muppet.
2: (laughs) When I first met Ed Ed Wilson, my agent, when he he picked me up um, after I'd been unceremoniously dumped by my last agent, um, he asked me, what, what is the thing that I would want most in the entire world? And I said, a Muppet of me, because I love, I love the Muppets. There's just, Muppet Christmas Carol, there is no better film at all. Um, and, and I had clearly put that in the back of his mind and kept it there. And then when we sold Weirdwood, he, he gets his authors a present, he always does that. And he had been conniving, that is the right word, behind my back with my wife throughout the whole of a um, lockdown and they was sending pictures backwards and forwards and they had a group of people who used to work for the Muppets have set up their own company and they made a Muppet of me and he's, he's is, here he lives in the bedroom he's called Jay awesome. Yeah I love him I love him so much I'll send you a picture of him so you can put him on.
0: Oh that's awesome yes. that's awesome. Is there yeah. is there anything else that you wanted to talk about because we're running out of time is there anything that we've missed
2: no we, we didn't even get into process or anything which is quite good because i don't have one i just
0: sit and write and book. well we, i think we've got sort of got a good handle on your process actually yeah <laughs> yeah you sit down I, and it, it just comes out I, I, we didn't talk about metal either well we sort of just, touched on it didn't we yeah. we touched I, on I it the only thing
2: I, I always think and i, I think it's a, a really odd thing is that when it comes to art what i produce and also what i like like the music I like is, is either really dark or really angry. And, and my my fiction is really dark. There, there's always a, a hope going through it. Like Weirdwood is very dark. It's the darkest thing I've written. But there is this thread of hope and people who really wish to change the world and make it better and people who are actually good. Um, and I always think that, that in art, what, what I'm always looking for is the bits that aren't in me. Because, I mean, I I wear all black and I have really long hair and I'm six foot and I can look quite threatening if it's a bit shady and you can't see my face and I don't smile or talk, in which case it just ruins it. But I always think that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the bits I don't have because I'm not angry. Never have been. And I'm not in the least bit. You probably pick that up. A bit dark. I'm just kind of like chill. And and, and I I love that about art, that suddenly we we can explore these places of us that aren't us.
0: Well, that's I, I always up. liked, I always, I, I, I fell into heavy metal. I was always really into rock music when I was younger and my dad had all the all classic rock collections. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of CDs and records that I used to listen to. And then I graduated through Guns N' Roses and then into Metallica and then some harder stuff like Machine Head and Pantera and all, all those mm-hmm. guys. And then I, I got into this, some real hard stuff like Strapping Young Lad and Devin Townsend. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I always thought that metal, it appealed to me and my sort of artistic side because it, it always skirts that line between order and chaos, and it sounds mm. chaotic, it, it really does, but it, it sort of takes it and makes some sort of order out of it. It is angry and aggressive, which is, it sounds like chaos, especially if you're not used to it. The first time I listened to Pantera, I thought, nope, it's just noise. It's actually just noise. <laughs> then you you listen to it a few times. You think, "Wow, this is really good." You know, there's a lot going on here, and you sort of break it down. And I I think I my write I like to approach writing in the same sort of way that it might look a little bit chaotic. People, to I I sort of throw everything at the kitchen and the kitchen sink mm-hmm. uh, manuscript when I'm doing it, and just see what happens which is the chaotic side and then you've got to sort of organize it into some sort of order. And I, when I, I, I did get onto some sort of prog rock as well. So I enjoyed dream theater and symphony mm. X and, and yeah. ma- ma- I like Maiden's progier stuff as well. <clears throat> but there's, I, well, I mean, what do you think of that? Of This idea of like, it looks chaotic and maybe it feels chaotic when you're putting it together and then you can sort of organize it and order it. And you've got something that skirts the line. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the
2: thing about music that's really clever is, is it's not chaotic because if it is, it it falls apart. Well, I
0: think it needs—it's music is so strange. It it, It needs a—it needs a bit of chaos. It needs something. Otherwise, you've just got a man, you know, like a manufactured pop song that has four chords and it just repeats, 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 repeats. You know exactly what's going to happen. But the really good stuff has has a little bit of chaos, like a bit of of where you know, yeah, the unexpected. It's the difference between
1: what's on the surface and what's in the center. All yeah. of music in the centre is incredibly organised. Mm. A lot of it on the surface appears chaotic.
3: Mm.
2: Have you come across Zeal and Ardour?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: They're astounding. And um, I'm going to give you a, a recommendation for you to go away and listen to something. Um, two tracks by the same person. And um, I doubt you would ever come across them usually because they're a country band. Um, well they kind of country band Country by Way of the Sisters of Mercy was um, an artist called David Eugene Edwards and he was a band called 16 Horsepower I'm, and if you yeah. find Ameri- do you know 16 Horsepower? Oh, you, you are the first person I've spoken to there blew my mind the first time mm-hmm. I heard 16 Horsepower you know, there's a track called American Wheeze which makes the accordion scary <laughs> uh, uh, and i just i was like what well, what is this I, i've never heard anything like this and i'm but recently he did a track called fab tool with um some french electronic music people uh-huh. uh, and watch it on youtube because watch the video as well uh, and it's the most jaw-dropping music i've probably heard in a decade just, well, i've just never heard i, I mean
0: like it. It, i'm i'm i don't know about you we, we, I think we're all of a similar sort of vintage on this call. Pete's probably the baby of, of the three of us. But I got to a certain point where I only wanted to listen to the music that I was familiar with growing up. I was like, oh, no, I've got my comfort zone and I'm quite happy with that. And every now and then something new comes along. It's not very often these days, you know, yeah. discovering loads of new music, but occasionally something comes along. So I'm really pleased that you mentioned that.
2: Yeah. Oh, the. They're, they're a band called Woven Hand now. Who I loved. It's really odd because David Eugene Edwards is very religious, which is not. I'm not. Um, <clears throat> I, I thought they were Satanists when I first heard them, because it's not a version of religion that, that I understand. And he, he's a lovely man, very um, left wing. But if you listen to the way he sings about God, he must just be terrified all the time. I My, I'm so pleased that Pete has heard of 16 Horsepower. It's so rare you meet people, actually, know not they are. Yeah. I, I will give
1: one recommendation back. Have you heard of a band called A Forest of Stars? No. Uh, um, this avant-garde black metal band, a lot of violin, a lot of it's this Victorian occult rage against everything wrong kind of theme to the lyrics. Um, look up a song called Drawing Down the Rain in particular.
2: Okay, I'm there for that.
1: Yeah. And I hate to be rude, but honestly, uh, RJ's left me in a mood to go read Gods of the Weird Words, so...
2: Well, we're <laughs> probably out of time, so... Yeah. I'm just glad go. that he's-, he's going back to it. So that's just all you want to hear is somebody going
0: yeah. I to go read this book no. <clears throat> <clears throat> well look RJ, it's been fantastic having you on as it's, a been guest. it's been absolutely yes. great fun it's been loads yeah. of fun and uh, yeah we've enjoyed every minute of it so thank you so much and yeah i mean who knows maybe we'll perhaps we could have you on again as a guest in the future sometime yes yeah and if
2: i do come on again um don't forget this i'm going to do a private cathedral by james lee burke which is um uh, a crime novel but it's a crime novel in which the heroes are hunted down by a thousand year old assassin from hell uh, and the denouement takes place on the river Styx <laughs> it's the, the most a private cathedral
0: right. by James Lee Burke
2: yes yeah, it's, it's about book 20 of his Dave rubbisher books and at no point in them is there an assassin from hell they're there's there's the little hints that maybe something supernatural is happening occasionally or maybe he's just drunk and then in a private cathedral he just goes nah i'm all in it's that sounds awesome uh, okay and that's you, awesome you never
0: doubt it but i'll
2: let you go because my, my wife wants to come watch television she's going will you be
0: like half Fair an enough. Hour? okay no it's been fa- fabulous talking to you thanks so much it's been Archie. Lovely. yeah it's been brilliant thank you so much bye-bye you
7: got a beautiful chin
0: This episode of Cron's Cast was brought to you by Dan Jones, Pete Long and our special smile. guest R.J. Barker Additional content was provided by Damaris Brown, Brian Sexton, Jay Starloper and M. Rose Nagel Special thanks to Brian Turner and all the staff at Cron's and thanks to you for listening Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate and review and continue the conversation at sffchronicles.com. Join us next month when our guest will be Anne Perry, the publishing director of Quirkus Books. Anne will be joining Pete and I to talk about Naomi Novik's multi-award winning high fantasy from 2015,
7: Uprooted. When I first met my eyes on you but I was ought to know you'd been my heroes too With your incessant talking
4: You're becoming a pet Rabbit, 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 rabbit rabbit, 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 rabbit